People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet and Don Nicholson. I hope you've had a great weekend and you're looking forward to the week ahead. One thing I do hope most of us have managed to do is put in a submission to the World Health Organization's regulations, the deadlines for which ended midnight yesterday and yeah wasn't that a great uh, initiative by the vff uh, team um, katie ashby coppins and alia bland and putting out um their their templates and, and ideas and really giving people um, a better understanding perhaps of uh, of the whole concept so big ups to them for their webinars last night and and their um and their output in recent weeks so yeah i hope I hope people have put in their submissions and um, we get a, we get the right outcome from this. Absolutely, but in you know, regardless of whether you've done or not, this is this is not yet over. If we know one thing, we know they keep coming back. These uh, agreements are going to be voted upon sometime in May, and then there's going to be a bit more time before they are uh, they become law or not. But have a look at www.voicesforfreedom.co.nz. And have a look at the World Health Organization treaty page. There's a separate one under the resources there. And get a better understanding of what these new amendments, over 300 of them, to the international health regulations and this pandemic treaty, what's that going to mean for you as an individual, your personal freedom, ability to travel? Because they now talk of uh, one health, one health, one world, one health. I mean, uh, you know. The iteration makes sense to me. Uh, it's, and, not, it's Nirvana. It's going to be Nirvana. I know. Jeez. I know. And uh, also, keep listening to the Legal Hub that, yeah. on RCR. The guys are on most Wednesdays, and we'll keep you updated here on RCR as this thing processes through these layers of bureaucracy and ultimately goes back to the United Nations. Yeah, and on top of that, we've got the COVID inquiry sort of discussion um, leading up to how that's going to look going on as well. But on top of all of that, Jasper, it's great to hear the RCR team back on the air 
all guns blazing last week. Um, yeah. You know, and late last Friday, I happened to um, listen to the new guy, um, mm-hmm. the dialogue, uh, with uh, Dewey DeBoer, and he was interviewing the Zeitgeist, Geist, um, William McGimsey. And, oh, the clear thought of those guys, uh, well worth a listen, as are all our guests, um, uh, hosts and their guests, well worth a listen. So join the Foundation Club, get in there, and um, be part of our team. Yeah, and not to miss the RCR Bytes curated news, and in a time when we have to deal with endless, endless bits of information, there's a f- simple email, short email of a few newsworthy items that you should have a look at every morning in your mailboxes, Monday to Friday, which is only if you join the Foundation Club. It's not a lot, just a bit more than a price of a cup of coffee a week. So have a look at that and join in if you support our mission. And as yeah. all Brennan says, it's a good mission. And I believe that. It's a good mission. And of course, Jasper, you've been on a mission. I watched you last week at your local council again. Uh, I can't believe I do this, but I just do need to know that you're not um, being too wildly outrageous <clears throat> at your council, but you were You were being very organised, very level. And I just wondered, it was about roading rates, listeners, um, and, and basically um, the formative work that the council does before they put out their plan. And so effectively the budget and I couldn't believe uh, 12 councillors, I don't think they were all there that day. Um, well, so they're only on that audit committee, perhaps I'm overstating that uh, or poorly stating that. But <clears throat> to think that there was the other councillors who had no questions, it's just let's tick the box and move on. I was worried about it. It looked like they were all in a daze. Um, and you were the only one that asked some pertinent questions, as I would expect. So was it fun? Did you have fun? It's it's a job, Don. It's something it's I signed job. up to do. And at the end of the day, I, I guess the only person I answer to is my ratepayers, the ones who voted me in, and myself. That uh, am I sticking up for the ones who voted me in? That's that's you, pretty much it. Yeah. So you're you're answering to your conscience, and that's the yes. key. That's the key here. Um, and <clears throat> you do that very well. And I'm just disappointed that. The others, if their conscience is to say nothing, um, I do wonder why they're there. And of course, when you analyse what Tom DeVries told us about getting active in your local communities, um, the only side that's getting active, it seems, is the other side uh, who want more from the ratepayer, not less. And yeah. they don't they don't care about efficiency. They don't care about um, productivity. Uh, yeah, exactly. So. It's very good that you're um, on the case, but boy, you've got a, as, as we learn with the sea level rise stuff and the coastal management, you've got a massive tide to turn to get into <laughs> that balance. And, and interestingly, how did you spend the rest of your week? I know that you bombard me with stuff, but I'll, I'll just say what I spend my week doing is trying to catch up with you. Um, but I do like watch uh, or read lots of um, output from the likes of Rod P- Roger Pialki Jr. or mm-hmm. Net Zero Watch or Matthew Wylicki or um, or others. Um, I, and there's so much out there, isn't there? I think I just survived the week. I was solo mumming last week. My husband was out uh, for a week's trip, and that between that, two children, council meetings, and all of that. The weeks just fly by. But I did go back and listen to Tom DeWeese, a couple of his uh, podcasts again. So listeners, if you missed last week, which was Don and my first show back after the summer hiatus, we had, among other guests, we had 
Tom DeWeese from the American Policy Center, talking about why it is absolutely vital, absolutely vital that you get vocal in your local local government, your geographically, your local neighborhood. You know, we, we keep being told, be good global citizens and think about other stakeholders. But when it cuts to the chase and when, you know, you really think about it, if every one of us looked after our own backyard, the country would sort itself out and as with the rest of the world. So, well, that's true, Jasper. but I was, and we're going to talk about this later on the show, but uh, about a group called CARE. And in there, there was a, you sent me a PDF of an interview that Sue Bradford, activist Sue Bradford, did with Mohan Dutta. And they talk about, uh, this is in Massey University, by the way, listeners, they talk about Sue Bradford, the activist in residence. And my point is, to bring that out to, to our listeners, is we're not that great on the other side of being activists and residents, so to speak, because we're actually wanting to be productive in our lives and do stuff for the right reasons. But these grifters are constantly coming at us from the other side, and they are far better organised, as Tom DeWeese said. They are so well organised, and it's up to us to put some put some tension back in there. Put, put some brakes mm. on the crazy. Yeah, we, mm. we are rather laid back, aren't we, until really push comes to shove. Yeah. We don't think about it. And talking about shoving, one thing I must mention is uh, what's happening in India right now. More specifically, the part of India where I come from, the north of India, Punjab, Haryana, and New Delhi. So some of you might remember that uh, this was about mid-2021 uh, to late 2022, almost 15 months during the peak of uh, COVID nonsense going on. The Indian farmers were protesting, again, starting from the north of India. And they were at that time assured that some of their, you know, their key demands would be met. They were sent back by the Modi government, you know, get back home, start farming, all is well. And now, just over a year later, they are back and they're trying to get to Delhi. But uh, what the Indian government did in its wisdom is it sealed the borders to Delhi. So it virtually is trying to stop farmers from Punjab. And Punjab is a big state. 30 million people. And so is Haryana. But you have to cross these two states to get to Delhi. And there is uh, about 10,000 paramilitary troops at the ready. There's 30,000 uh, rubber bullets, tear gas shells. Uh, tear gas is very innovatively now being deployed using drones. And there is a lot of chaos, mayhem there going on. And I'm hoping... Sooner or later, farmers of the world will see it is not isolated. It is one agenda mm. around the world. Some of us have some subsidies, some of us don't. But when you cut to the chase of it all, what is happening is farming is being made unviable by any means whatsoever. So, so it's it's horrible to watch on the social media or even the media that I've seen, uh, Jasper, it's getting, when I see razor wire and um, big barriers being put up, it's it's not going to end well, this, well, you wouldn't think. What is the upshot for Delhi? Would that, is it, how's the food supply going to get in if if all corridors of trade and movement of food is going to, will there be people at risk in Delhi? There is, uh, there's different, I mean, D Delhi has a lot of arterial highways. This mm. is just one, one. of okay. one of those. But the one that's among, you know, the most uh, heavily used, because anyone coming to North India, 
you land at Delhi, someone like me, I have to then either take a taxi, 200Ks uh, drive or take a flight. So that has been completely stopped. The, <laughs> the price of flights has gone up by 10 times. There are people who've landed in Delhi from overseas coming to India in the winter for something, you know, a holiday of wedding or something. And uh, they're stuck in Delhi because there's no other way to get in. The flight from Delhi to Punjab is now costing them nearly as much as the flight from Canada to Delhi did. <laughs> oh well, there's no uh, what's the there's no black market, I'm assuming. <laughs> no, no, there's there's all sorts of uh, madness going on right now, and our Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Modi is in the Middle East. He is just inaugurated in Dubai a big Hindu temple because that is priority. And it's supposed to be a coup because here there is a, a temple, uh, you know, a Hindu worshipping place that's now in the Middle East, which is otherwise a Muslim stronghold. And yet yeah, he's being fated and yeah, there's peons and peons being written in his glory and how he's, you know, managed to pull this off. It is... It is surreal what you're living well, through, Don. Well, it's where your priorities lie, isn't it? You know, um, Very telling, fa yeah. Fame and fortune. But as, isn't it interesting? A, a week on from um, the directives that came out of the European Union, uh, it seems that um, the European Commission and European Parliament, or European Commission had to back down in the face of tension from farmers and truckies. But uh, it seems the output now seems to suggest that, well, they didn't have the numbers in the European Parliament to do what they wanted anyway. So um, the the uh, president, uh, who is not up for re-election, I think that she gets appointed, um, has realised she's read the tea leaves and said, uh, yep, we'll just back off for a bit. So nothing has changed that's still around for the rainy day where they can have round two. Uh, at the moment, sorry, it has perhaps had the brakes put on. So isn't it interesting how India... European Union uh, and other places uh, have been doing these farm protests. Um, and as we've said before, we have different issues here, uh, uh, same issues, different sorts, different angle from coming at them. We, we're unsubsidised but over-regulated. They're subsidised, paid for the regulatory compliance and still unhappy. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think of it as a boa constricted on. You constrict, then you let the yeah. victim breathe a bit. Ah, let's yes. again, come again. Ah, well, that's and what... then the final squeeze of death. Let's see. Let's see. Was, I'm probably a great... being a bit melodramatic. No, that's... I think that's a great analogy. That's how governments work. They've slowly, they give you a bit, a bit more air and oops, we're, we're okay, we're free again to carry on. But it just keeps coming back at us. So, yeah, that's a great analogy. Good work. Thank you. What's next on our show? Some Mickey Mouse headlines. I really don't have another way to put this. And mm -hmm. the greenwashing that's been going on. The I think I'll call it the, crime, the climate crazies. And what have they been up to over the last week? And some of which which have caught my attention are, <laughs> one of them is, is from the States. And, you mm -hmm. know, we've, I've mentioned it here often, people don't know it, that we have two climate commissions a New Zealand Climate Commission and a Aotearoa Maori Climate Commission because climate is racist and we have to take different measures depending on our ethnicities to manage climate. But uh, here's the US talking about the exact same thing, how climate change affects different ethnicities differently. Have a listen. This is Rachel Levine. Americans to live in areas and housing that increase their susceptibility to climate-related health issues. 
And 65% of black Americans report feeling anxious about climate change's impact. Through our Office of Climate Change and Health Equity and the Office of Environmental Justice, we're working with providers and community leaders to identify innovative approaches that empower communities to address the health consequences linked to climate change. So there is an Office of Health Equity and Climate Change. I probably missed a big first snippet, but uh, Rachel Levine, I mean, if anyone has seen her on the TV or any any audiovisual media, that's a site you won't forget. But there she is talking about the fact that climate change affects black Americans or people of color. I don't even know what the politically correct term is now, Don, uh, differently. Well, I'm a person of color. Uh, it's just not the same as you. And uh, so yes. that, that, that really annoys me, even hearing people teach like they want to have the separate of uh, you know separation or differentiation um because white is different from everything else sorry i just i just get sick of it but that clip was um galling to watch and i, I imagine to listen to for our listeners today but um yeah have, have a look at it and the fact that this person is got anything any sort of say on health on public health biggest belief i mean for me this person epitomizes all that's wrong with the U.S. right now. Yeah, um, I think she's transgender rather than, oh, sorry, the person is transgender, am I right? I'm not I'm sure. Not, I'm, I'm not I complaining am... about that, but the, the statements that were uttered the... are just weird, just weird. I mean, this is a physically overweight person talking to everyone about health issues all the time. I mean, call me old-fashioned, but if, and hey, I could stand to lose a few pounds, but I am not representing public health, you know? So I'm I'm holding my pounds happily around my waist. But <laughs> if you are going to be doing that, if you are going to be doing that, please make sure you're a picture of health first. Yeah, but um, what gets me is we've got it no matter where we look. Uh, racism and climate change are put in the same box uh, nowadays by so many people, and we are going to talk about the New Zealand group Care, the Massey University group. I mean, they're doing the same thing. They've got people addressing them on this very same issues. Why? It's a, the pointy end is coming, isn't it? It, it is. can't. It is. We can't. We can't afford, let alone listen to much more of this diatribe. <laughs> <laughs> and people have free speech, and the only way you can have free speech is to have legal free speech. Is to have free speech. So no one's needs the. Rehab, yeah, I'm not saying shut it down, but mm. common sense has to prevail. Common sense has to prevail. It does have to win you. And, 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 and of course, Jasper, you have come up with some other um, bits uh, and pieces this week that talk about, um, you know, uh, different places of the world with different greenhouse yeah. gases. And, and yeah. the greenwashing so, of greenhouse gases is unbelievable. So the next on the climate crazy headlines is from The Guardian. Mm. Well, that's telling in itself. But yeah. this is a story from Greenland. And they say, Climate experts sound alarm over the thriving plant life at the Greenland ice sheet. Research shows there has been a near quadrupling across Greenland of methane-producing wetlands. Hey, Greenland is suddenly uh, upping your uh, methane and other greenhouse gases. Let's call a few cows here in New Zealand, Don, shall we? That's how it works, doesn't it? But yeah, look, methane um, from cows is the only uh, issue in New Zealand. Methane 
from ruminant animals, actually. Um, but around the rest of the world, there's methane belching out everywhere. Um, no one seems to be too stressed about it. Uh, I mean, I know in papers out here, in rural papers even, you hear of so-and-so has created a wetland. Yeah. And, you know, they're thriving biodiversity. Yeah. Well, how about the methane then? Does it not matter? No, it's different. Methane molecule from um, from from the swamps is different. <laughs> Jasper, good God, uh, it is no, CH four. My na- nearly nine year old would tell you CH four is CH four. It will yep. behave as CH four. CH four, incidentally, folks, for those who are not into this, is methane. It's so, quite a quite a useful gas, actually. Uh, it's it's well used around the world, and uh, it's not it's not scarce, and it's not undesirable. So um, I don't know, but we've had it demonized by so many people. It's a bit like CO two. There's more and more people come coming to the party, though. Jaspreet, CO two is is green the world, and it's fabulous. Um, let's let's uh, make more CO two. Perhaps is what we should be saying because it's it's the fertilizer of life. Well, then you will be very happy to hear that uh, we, uh, and not we, Australia has just hosted uh, T- Taylor Swift last week. Yeah. In what was uh, supposedly her biggest show uh, ever on the planet, close to 100,000 people. But Taylor says that she has mitigated all her carbon emissions of her private jets and all of that because she plants trees somewhere or buys some credits. How about the... Uh, how has everyone who's come to her shows, those hundreds of thousands of people, because it was not just one show, how did they offset theirs? Should she be doing this? Oh, one flight at a time. Um, they they offset theirs. I know people from Invercargill that went uh, to, to uh, Taylor Swift. Uh, young teenagers were given the rights to go there by their parents and funded, and, you know, the lucky young ladies they were. Anyway, um it's it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Dan Stan closed down. Uh, Dan Andrew, sorry, closed down Victoria. I think yeah. Victor- Victoria can Victoria. Now call itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can it can call itself Victoria again. Melburnians are happy as hell. I mean, there was rumours. Uh, you know, there was reports. Sorry, not rumours. Um, that Melbourne's uh, stimulus from the Taylor Swift concerts were would have been into the billions. So fabulous, yeah. Melbourne. Good work, because you you're a big city, you're a lovely city, and look, the economic uh, activity just keep it going. Don't stress about uh, emissions from anybody. Yeah, thank Taylor Swift. She might just green you up a bit. God knows you can. Parts of Australia can do with some greening. <laughs> well, no, Australia's yeah, yeah, they could do with some um, some different greening uh, mm-hmm. or less greening in the teal suburbs of of Sydney, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> But look, isn't it interesting how you've again sent me some stuff on um, the rewilding of of the savannah in Africa, and I just don't get this. You're talking a hundred million hectares. Uh, that's a significant chunk of, chunk of dirt, by the way. All right, listen. So let's get into the third climate crazy headline, <laughs> and this one again is as as Don mentions, it is from the Guardian. I, I should, you know, actually buy it. Because every time I click the Guardian, it says support us just with your bread. It says 380 articles in the last year. Might just do that. Well, this one from the Guardian says, ill-judged pre-planting in Africa threatens ecosystems, warns scientists. Research reveals that an area the size of France is under threat by, drumroll please, restoration projects taking place in unsuitable landscapes. Boy, oh boy, how does that happen? 
Now, I've mentioned here on the show, as well as uh, on different VFF webinars, that around 2017, Ethiopia got some sort of a Guinness Book World Record by planting 350 million trees in a day, in a day. And then less than two years later, there was UNESCO asking, uh, UNICEF asking for donations for food for people starving in sub-Saharan Africa. You are planting the wrong tree in the wrong place. They are trying to rewild the savanna there. And not just a small part, massive area. Yeah, and I, you know, the, the, the engineer in me says, I don't know how they do that because uh, if you've got wild animals and, um, and lack of water and all sorts of things, how do these new plants survive? Hundreds, uh, they probably don't even care, Don, because there but, is someone like Taylor Swift, who's possibly buying carbon credits mm. to offset this thing because she thinks there's a tree being planted somewhere. They're talking of an area which is 100 million hectares or 250 million acres nearly in Africa, which is now under threat. This particular endeavor was called is called the AFR 100. Mm. And it is supported by none other than the Gates Foundation, and endorsed by the UNFCC, the Climate Change Group, UNESCO, FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization, amongst others. And what are they doing? Essentially destroying ecosystems while laughing all the way to the bank. Well, there's two things, or there's more than two, but two instantly come to my mind. How the dickens can you protect from predators that many trees in, a, in an area that's not fenced um, with fences, because you, effectively you're, try, you're going to have to try and keep predators off them if you're trying to put seedlings and saplings in, in this area. No, Don, it's even more stupid than that. I mean, that uh, logic doesn't even come. The research that's now being done, it says that the research found that the misclassification of grassy ecosystems happened, and they included savannas as forests, which led to reforestation here. The definition that the United Nations uh, FAO, Food and Agricultural Organization, uses to define forest is an area which is more than half a hectare, with trees more than five meters high, with canopy of at least 10%. And under this definition, they classified African savanna as forests, and then just started rewilding these forests. I mean, seriously? There well, is money involved here. There's no, there is absolutely no love for nature, people, their livelihoods involved at all. This is a money game. Did they, did they come to New Zealand and learn from our um, ETS forestry, where you plant pines on perfectly good food producing country? Uh, it, yeah, perhaps they did. Perhaps they learned there. But it even gets to um, sort of the peak absurdity of the week when we, we're going to play an interview with Barry Brill later on. Uh, maybe that $30 billion donation that was pledged by the former Prime Minister in 2021 to the UNFCCC might have been going to be sort of pushed into those sort of areas in the world. What do you think? As, as 100%. 100% on. Yeah. Now, is that the ultimate virtue signalling? Ultimate. We're going to talk about this later with Barry Brill, the peak absurdity of the week. I... When he wrote this article a few weeks ago, I couldn't believe it. I thought we mainstream media will be all over this like a rash. Not touched. He wrote about it in 2022. 
It's it was untouched then, it's untouched now. And this is about a $30 billion pledge that's in the future liability in New Zealand's budget. Um, so or New Zealand accounts. Uh, that former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and James Shaw and others signed up to. Mm-hmm. Not in November 2021 with no consultation whatsoever. And yeah, we will come to this one. But mm. before we move on to our first guest today, there's one more climate crazy headline that I'd like to talk about. And this is these greenhouse gases that are so handy. I mean, they're just amazing. They do whatever you want them to do. So this one is from The New Scientist. And the headline says, rising greenhouse gases, rising greenhouse gases have cooling effect on Antarctica's atmosphere. This is 16th February's headline last week. It says, this is now, there's a term for it. A negative greenhouse effect means that rising concentrations of carbon dioxide and methane have cooled parts of Antarctica's upper atmosphere. But that could, and the keyword being could, could change as the air becomes more humid. But for now, probably in my lifetime, if the emissions are cooling Antarctica, ain't that good? Well, it just shows you the absurdity <laughs> of the whole regime. It's ifs, coulds, so, maybes, mites is all in this narrative that comes if out. I of- could, if I could simplify that, Don, if I could put that in one line, I would say it is cold because it's hot. <laughs> that's That's what it is. That's what they're essentially telling me. Uh, yeah, look, it's it, that's 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 too confusing for me, um, Jasprit. Uh, because they're saying these warming gases are cooling the atmosphere. Yeah, I know. So, I know. so it's cold because it's hot. Uh, and they 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 on top of all that, um, they've confused the world uh, by talking about uh, each gas in isolation when we know it's a very mixed atmosphere and that CO uh, that water vapor is the key greenhouse gas that keeps us pretty stable and mm-hmm. happy. And normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, life's not bad if you just got rid of all these people that tried to put the fear of the future in uh, the minds of people. I just enjoy, enjoy the day is what I say. But maybe, you know, maybe I'm just older, wiser. Uh, I wouldn't count on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, would you introduce our first guest, John, and the segment you're going to be playing now before him? Well, look, uh, last week there was National Land Day at the field days released around Parliament uh, as well as in the field days in southern in Southland. And that's great, National Land Day. But in 2005, um, and we, we missed last week playing this, um, there was a skit done by Sam Kakovich. I think he was a former AFA, AFL or league player in Australia who talked about uh, Australia Meat Day. And it is so funny. And they've continued these... Uh, every year, but we're going to play you the 2005 Sam Kakovich uh, skit. And and after that, uh, we'll welcome on Groundswell's Bryce McKenzie for a short report on what's been happening so far. So thank you so much for joining Don and me this morning. And this is Josh Preet with Don Nicholson. And our number is 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. See you in a moment. There's nothing worse than being un-Australian. I should know. I've been Australian all my life. And I'm sickened by the creeping tide of un-Australianism eroding our great traditions. Like our custom of eating lamb on Australia Day. Un-Australianism is everywhere. For example, people wearing those plastic, brightly coloured flip-flop shoes with flowers on them. What's wrong with rubber thongs in simple primary colours? If I hear another person say thong, 
when they mean those swimming costumes punty Brazilian blokes wear up their bums, I'll do my block. Sadly, the scourge of un-Australianism has even infected our national day. A balanced Australia Day diet should consist of a few nice juicy lamb chops and beer, and perhaps a bit of pavlova for those with a sweet tooth. Yet your long-haired, dull-bludging types are indulging their pierced taste buds in all manner of exotic, foreign often vegetarian cuisine. Chicken burger value meals, pizzas, are number 42 with rice. It's an absolute disgrace. And people ask why we need capital punishment. Do you think the diggers in the trenches were fighting for tofu sausages? No. They were thinking of grabbing a lamb chop off the barbie with their bare fingers, sustaining third-degree burns, then sticking their hands in or relieving Esky to fish out a cold one. Look at our national song, Walsing Matilda. It's about a bloke trying to get a nice bit of lamb into his tucker bag. Not spicy chicken wings. The soap-avoiding, pot-smoking, hippie vegetarians may disagree with me, but they can get stuffed. They know the way to the airport, and if they don't, I'll show them. So the message is clear, even for you backpackers. Roll out the barbie, ensure the gas bottle's filled, stack the fridge full of lamb, and prepare the invitation list. So don't be un-Australian. Serve lamb on Australia Day. You know it makes sense. I'm Sam Kekovich. Welcome back to RCR Greenwash listeners uh, with Jasper and Don. I hope you enjoyed that little uh, skit from Sam Kakovich and the Aussie um, Meat Day of 2005. It sort of brings into uh, interview the Ag Proud and others uh, release of the National Lamb Day last week at the Southern Field Days and around Parliament, actually. And in that vein, we have Bryce McKenzie, who was at the Southern Field Days. Bryce is the uh, one of the prime movers, in fact, the prime mover, the face of Groundswell uh, with Laurie. Uh, he was at the field days for three days, and we welcome him back to RCR Greenwashed for his second show. And the question to ask first up, Bryce, is how did it go at the field days? What was the sentiment life? Did you eat a few lamb chops? <laughs> yeah. Hi, Don and Jasper and listeners. Um, Yes, I did eat some lamb chops. Uh, I had several uh, meals of mutton and, and uh, particularly lamb chops at the field days, and they were very, very nice. Mm. Highly recommend them, Don. Highly recommend them. So, look, you, you had three days there, and it's um, it's a massive event for the South. There's huge uh, effort goes into coordinating, not only by the management committee that you know, you, you'll know the people that involved, but the the people that show there, where's there? Um, it's a massive cost, let alone a massive effort to get to get things there. Was it well patronised? Were there tens of thousands of people over the three days? Yes, it was, Don. Of course, it rained on Thursday, so I guess that got the cropping guys along for a look. But I think having a look would be the operative uh, word. I think it was a socks and jocks type of field day. People bought small ticket items because that's all they could afford. Um, interesting talking to the people that come to our stand, and there was a, we were steady the whole time. Um, some of them are, are very upset with the, uh, what's happening happening presently. They um, uh, they want to stir up action and. Um, mm. There was a lot of comments on that. Also, others that there's definitely two um, vast views out there. One lot want action, another lot want to give this government time. So, um, time is going to tell, and the 100 day clock is ticking. And it'll be interesting to see what they come out with at the end of the 100 days. I can go into that in some more detail if you'd like, because we did meet with, uh, we had a, a short 
meeting with the Prime Minister, mm-hmm. and we had an extensively long meeting with uh, the Minister of Agriculture and the Minister for the Environment. So uh, they were very, very fruitful meetings. We met, combined with Federated Farmers and met uh, met them for uh, there was two other MPs there, Joseph Mooney and Miles Anderson. So it was a very, very uh, good meeting. Yes. Yeah, so, so just on that, um, the Prime Minister gave you the feeling that, uh, and yeah, I'm going to put you on the matter wee bit here. Did he give you the feeling that he really has a good grasp of all the issues facing not only regional New Zealand but New Zealand in general? You know, we've we've definitely had some mm, what what some interesting times. I'd be polite in saying <laughs> in the last six years and. And even a few years before that, things just weren't going right for farming. There was this overreach that you guys fight, this overregulation. Um, did he get you a feeling that um, enough of emphasis was going on reeling back or winding back some of that overreach? Yes, he did. And we only spent a very short time with him, but we were invited to his press conference. And that was very telling because uh, he got his Q&A. Uh, he should have been fronting up there to answer questions put in government. Mm-hmm. He said that he considered that the uh, New Zealand agriculture had been overlooked for far too long by successive governments. Uh, and he said this is, goes back a number of years. And he felt he was in the best place for New Zealand being at the field days. So something like that is pretty good when it's coming from a prime minister. We haven't heard talk like that for a long, long time. He said he knew what New Zealand was built on and farmers needed to be um, cherished for what they do. I don't know cherished was the actual word he used, but it was something similar to that. (laughs) Revered. I'd like to think the word was revered, actually, (laughs) Bryce. But... But interestingly, when you think of what's going on... And, uh, I was just trying to think what the word was he used, but a yeah, very telling comment from... Uh, he was asked whether... Well, he should have been in leaks in Parliament, and was he concerned about them? Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that um, he was uh, more concerned about the uh, water leaks than he was the political leaks. Oh, a bit of wit always goes well in this one. We're frozen. Uh, it's interesting. And gentlemen, in the same vein, this last weekend, I was at uh, the celebrations of the new farming history display at the Thornbury Rural Heritage Centre. And again, there was this big sense of how much agriculture is, you know, is what this this province and, you know, much of New Zealand is built upon. So it's great to see some recognition of that coming from the new Prime Minister, Bryce. Yeah, it was really good to hear, Jasper. It's, uh, we haven't heard something like this for a long time. So it was music to the ears. Of course, um, immediately after, uh, I got interviewed by Stuff and they said, well, what's your thoughts? And I said, well, it's hard not to be sceptical because we've heard well, I suppose yeah. we haven't heard much from the other government that we had, the Labor government, but I said, you know, there's so much happen and so many regulations come in, it's hard to imagine that they're really going to attack them. But in meeting with the ministers after talking to the Prime Minister, they certainly have, uh, were, and I wouldn't say they have a plan yet, they're working on a plan, they're methodically working through Um 
we asked them why they couldn't just tell councils to stop with all the the new uh, freshwater plans and uh, yep. and and just say stop. And they said, well, legally they can't do that because it's in law. So they've got to wind back those laws before they can tell them. So what they've said is they they should put a hold on them because they're going to be changed quite dramatically. So that explained to us why they hadn't just said stop doing anything. So hopefully um, they're going to get the, the laws changed um, mm-hmm. and they're going just listening to Christopher Luxon, this is going back a little, just listening to him, he he was adamant that New Zealand has been stifled by all sorts of regulations. And, of course, the Resource Management Act, there's a lot comes from that, Timana Y. So there's a lot of places where these regulations are coming from, and they're stifling all businesses, not just farming. Nobody yeah. can get on and do anything. So he's very conscious of that and wants that corrected. Well, um, if it's any solace to you, uh, Bryce, uh, RCR Greenwashed is going to have a show or segment called the um, Greenwash Grifters of the Week. And um, we could have grifters of the century, uh, this this century I'm talking about, in terms of the people that have been damaging New Zealand's uh, real producers. There's been a plethora of them, and it's over successive governments, in my opinion, that have been you know, nibbling away at our, at our effort uh, constantly to the point where we got to in uh, 2023. It just there's just yeah. nothing left. Nothing left in the tank, is there? There's nothing. No, left there in the is tank. not. And so we'll go back to the field days for a moment. Um, I have watched you on your Groundswell um, Facebook page, and you clearly had quite a salutary warning for the regional centres, let alone um, the major centres, about <clears throat> the lack of spending that's likely to be going. You know, it is happening now. And yeah. may get worse. May get worse. What's your feeling? Could you express that again, please? Yes, Don. Not until uh, and we talked to a number of people that had stands there, and of course, for us, we were interested in the what was happening with big ticket items, your, your tractors, uh, um, farm machinery, that sort of thing. Yeah, and um, of course, after COVID, these companies who had been short of stock have, have outlaid a lot of money to bring stock in so that they could have uh, stock in front of farmers for renewal because they couldn't get it during COVID. And that's backfired on them, really, because they're sitting with all the stock and, uh, and nobody nobody really wants it. And it was not good to talk to one very, very big machinery dealer. I won't mention the names because I think that would be unfair. But um, he said that they were going into survival mode. And, I mean, we all know what happens when you go into survival mode. That means that you stop spending too. So, unfortunately, um, that means that, I guess, staff then are looked at pretty hardly. Are they worth keeping on? So... This is going to have a snowball effect, without a doubt. I I remember uh, way back, and I probably got my figures wrong, but a a dollar produced inside the farm gate for the regional economy of Southland generated, I think, four or five outside the farm gate. Mm. Uh, Mm. And so that's that's what we're talking about here, listeners. This is big. Uh, If the checkbook goes away, it's just uh, it's it's it creates downstream effect that's quite quite severe. So. Yeah, that sentiment's there. Um, what what else did you find at the field days? Just speaking to people uh, in general, the mood is is pretty sombre, I gather. 
Look, sheep and beef farmers, without a doubt, are really struggling. And, and I mean, dairy farmers, it's not going to be that buoyant, but I guess it's an opportunity for them to break even or make a small profit if they watch their spending. But there's not much chance of that happening for sheep and beef farmers unless they're in a very, very good position financially. So for them, um, they were... Um, uh, not buoyed at all. They were very down in the dumps, most of them. I think they really enjoyed the day out um, because it got them off the farm and got them talking to other people mm. in the same position as them. So for that reason, it was good. But the but thing that really struck us, I suppose, Don, is um, uh, it would be hard to put in a figure on it, but how many hundreds of millions of dollars worth of stuff there was that that showed. And there would be hundreds of millions of dollars worth mm. Now, they, they need to get a return on it, and yeah. the only place they get the return is from the farming sector because they, they're the ones that buy it. Oh, of course, it's still farming sector, but contractors, of course, are big uh, ticket item buyers it too. And we talked to some contractors, and they're really feeling it because farmers who have their own tractor are doing every last little bit they can before they call on a contractor. So they're feeling the pain as well already. Yeah, no wonder. Bryce, what are you hearing about banks? Are people getting pressure from the from the bankers? Uh, you know, the end of the dairy farming season is looming and credit limits, overdraft renewals, uh, even staff wages, the wage inflation, I, I believe, uh, February, the median wage went up to is $1.3164 an hour. If you have mm. someone on a visa, which many of most of the dairy industry would have. Mm. Uh, Jasper, at this stage, People aren't really talking about that. They did talk about banks and they talked about them as in these jolly interest rates more than anything else. Uh, none of them seem to be referring to, I can't get money for this and I can't get money for that. And that's probably because that's a very personal thing. And, and until it's reasonably widespread, uh, yep. the farming community don't tend to talk about it. Uh, but when they hear other people saying, oh, you know, I'm struggling paying my staff because the bank won't give me money, once they hear one or two, then they open up. So at this stage, that wasn't happening. Most of them were just talking about how they were going to survive through the season. And, uh, yes, they did talk about bank interest rates and how whenever there's a hint of a, uh, official cash rate rise, the banks are in the next day and they've got their rates up. And, uh, I mean, if we could make a fraction of the profits they're making, uh, we would all be happy, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, and I know just how quickly there was a flip in the last few weeks but from uh, a downward trend uh, with Doing the official upward. cash rate. Now, now there's some some in the, in the banking fraternity talking about it going the other way now. Oh, boy, once we hear that talk, the sentiment moves, doesn't it? And it's, uh, if only they could uh, feel what we feel, uh, perhaps, Perhaps they do, but yes. it doesn't doesn't seem like that. Hey, so you know, we've got a lot uh, going on, and you've got a lot going on. Uh, what what's the plan or program for groundswell in twenty twenty four? I mean, I, I remember you sort of said you've been a bit quiet uh, on one of your um, outputs on Facebook groundswell Facebook page. What is your plans for twenty twenty four? What do you see it evolving to? Uh, very much a watchdog position. Uh, we've met with Federated Farmers and Beef and Lamb. We haven't uh, met with Dairy NZ yet. They tend to be a little bit more protective of uh, their situation. <laughs> but uh, I, I've, we've made no secret of the fact that we think there should be one voice for farmers, one rural voice. We don't think there should be 
in our case, we're a part of it, four, four voices for advocacy for agriculture. We think there should be one advocate advocator for agriculture. We believe federated farmers, even though it's got a lot of things it needs to sort out, it's probably got the best system for working through as long as it start, really starts taking heed of the farmers rather than their boards. Um, there's a lot going on behind the scenes, Don, and we're really hopeful that this is going to come to fruition. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to work. I think we've got to work through a lot of stuff yet. But um, there's no reason why Beef and Lamb, Dairy NZ and ourselves can't have a say, but that should say should be all sorted before anybody goes to government. We should not be going there and then having a government department trying to sort out which organisation wants what. It should all be decided. It's all. It's very easy to pick them off individually if you're saying different things. And and it's interesting, Bryce. I think I've talked about this before. Go back pre 2011, my time. Um, there was no way we wanted Dairy and Z. We used to growl at them, Dairy and Z and Beef and Lamb. Get out of our space. Um, it's not your space. Your levy payers don't want you to be in this advocacy space. And slowly but surely, they convinced their levy payers that they should be in the advocacy space, and they undermined fed farmers. This is my opinion all the way through. And then, of course, um, we had, I think we got, uh, we had some people that were a bit close to government. That's the problem. So you lose your, you lose your emphasis. Lobbyists uh, get close to government. um, But when you're trying to represent a constituency that's wide ranging, um, lobbyists can't uh, represent you all. And it was it's it was a fractured model in the end, wasn't it? With four of you, and, and now we've got Ag oh. Proud, Ag Proud on the fringes as well. That they're doing that, that sort of nice stuff to do, make make people feel good about um, farming, and the society good about farmers. Um, in the end, uh, you've got to be careful that you don't have a split voice. And you know, you look and saying that though, if it wasn't for and say Jasper and Holland, the Farmers Defence Force. Um, the EU was running rough, sh- you know, and the European Commission and European Parliament was running rough shot over all of them. So maybe there does need to be at least and some splinter group. I don't know. I, 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 I think I think the same with Bryce. There needs to be some splinter group because what we've seen is, and I, you know, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but levy-funded bodies, at, to a vast extent, have sided with the regulator. They've almost become spokespersons for the regulator, you know, rather than pushing the farmer's voice that way, it seems to be top down. And that's where Groundswell holding its own independently for me is is big. Yeah, I, I probably should clarify that, Jasper. We have no intentions of being part of negotiating teams. Uh, that's never been our intention. We would far sooner sit on the outside and hold them to account. If they start uh, being puppets of the government, Mm. We would like to be able to have the freedom to step in and say that's wrong. You can't do that. So uh, when I just said we would like to be a watchdog, we would like to be a watchdog, but not not necessarily in the room. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's um, that's the, the good place to be, and it's probably a good place to wind up this interview. We um, we are very thankful you can come on and give us a quick overview of the farmer sentiment this year at the field days and your uh, sense of the future. And, you know, we've we've got the government getting to the 100 days, their first 100 days, and um, I think you've been very respectful and sort of saying, give them time, give them space. There is uh, clearly a new direction, and uh, the proof of their output will be in the pudding very soon. 
I think, Don, it's pertinent you brought up the 100 days again because we talked to them directly about that and they knew about our 100-day website, so that's good. Um, and I said to them, well, are you going to achieve what you've said in the 100 days? And they said straight out, no, we're not. And I said, well, you need to give us timelines so we can adjust our website. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble and so are we. So they went away saying they are going to give us timelines on certain things. So, no, they're not going to achieve it all in 100 days. And that was probably because they said they're a bit naive, thinking they could just turn things around straight away. Of course, they're very worried about court actions, so they've got to take all the right steps. Excellent, yeah. and I'm glad you could you could you know pin them down to that one. So this was uh, listeners. This was Bryce McKenzie, one of the co-founders of Groundswell, giving us a report on the recently concluded Southern Field Days and the farmer sentiment there. All part to Groundswell this year, Bryce. We'll be watching you, and no doubt we'll be in touch soon. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Okay, thank you both, and keep up the good work. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Welcome back. You're with Greenwashed. I'm just free here with my co-host, Tom Nicholson. Hope you're well and you're enjoying this lovely Monday, wherever you are, or you're possibly working and going to catch up with us later this evening. It's all good. Don and I just spoke to Bryce McKenzie at Groundswell a moment ago. But uh, before that, in our first segment, we spoke about some climate crazy headlines we saw. And just to continue that one, that theme, there is one more that caught my attention recently. It was this news about two Northern Territory cattle stations in Australia being marketed for their ability to generate carbon credits. This deal is worth more than one million and well, more than a hundred, one hundred million, yeah. and uh, we are actually now not producing. Seems to be more uh, more attractive than producing anything, doesn't it, Don? Yeah, well, that's the options that are being given now uh, by the rules and regulations of um, you know climate reduction policy, uh, greenhouse gas reduction policy, and we're given the opportunity to monetize uh, carbon credits. And uh, in the end, as we learn from others, the monetization of nature is around the corner. So, if only yeah. we could eat carbon credits, it would be all right. But we are heading into a perfect storm. The way this this is going, this article, this news was carried out uh, by the on the ABC website, and these are big cattle stations. I mean, they're talking of fifty thousand heads of cattle on one, and something similar another one. But what has happened is they've registered carbon projects on both properties, and now it is being offered for sale, one of those for potential to generate about $10.4 million of ACCUs, Australian Carbon Credit Units, over 25 years. The properties in total, the area is 620,000 hectares. 
Once this once this goes through, you can just see what's coming next after this, isn't it? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, the Northern Territory the is being tested here. Yes, yes, and it's in the Northern Territory. There is some significantly big farms that are now using big irrigation schemes as well, and they've found that the Northern Territory just add water in some of the valleys there that are very fertile and and very good farming uh, areas. So. On the other side of that coin, there are people are saying, well, it's almost getting too hard. Let's take the easy option. And they're they're saying, let's do this. Now, we've spent, or I've spent 25 years or more railing against carbon credits and and, uh, the trading of what is hot air, you might say. Mm. And some people have just said, let's get into this boots and all. And there's more and more of them saying, this is all too hard farming. Let's just let's just take the easy life. Let's take the easy option. Let's just get out of this. And it's uh, I get disappointed with people that have weakened their resolve over 20 years um, and sort of want to be caught up in the, uh, well, look, we'll just, we'll, just, we'll just cave into the noise and take the cash. Yeah. And you sort of can't blame them, but it's there's, a lack of principle. Some- there's some warnings being sounded right now of how this is going to work. Now, these stations are Maryfield and Limbanya stations. They've both been registered for what Australia calls HIR projects, human-induced regeneration projects. Mm-hmm. I mean, I only knew human-induced global warming. But the former chair of the Emissions Reductions Assurance Committee, Andrew McIntosh Professor, is saying that given where these two stations are located, where these projects are located, and how little of the properties has been cleared, it's very unlikely that the amount of carbon they claim they're going to be sequestered in the regenerating forest is actually going to occur. But mm-hmm. let that not stop anything. Well, we talk about um, the monetization of biodiversity, all the stuff, it's all interlinked. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm not quite sure where it ends, Jasper. It's a mysterious part of... Um, the evolution of man, this whole concept to me. And I, I don't know, maybe I just haven't haven't grasped it. The well. science does not add up even today, Don. So we know where this is going to end up, end up at the banks. The projects mm. are supposed to involve reducing grazing pressure by, you know, destocking them in order to induce regeneration of native forests. But uh, as uh, the professor says, Professor Andrew McIntosh, he says 70, 80 years of high quality science in Australia's rangelands has shown that grazing does not have that sort of effect. Grazing does not result, grazing by cattle that is, does not result in a substantial reduction of the amount of tree cover in these areas. The general rule of thumb is grazing by cattle has negligible impact on tree cover or at times it can even regenerate tree cover, which is opposite to what these projects are doing. Well, in fact, that's absolutely right. And in fact, one of the big promoters of Regen Ag, I think, is a guy, Alan Savory. And he talks about cell grazing of ruminant animals to uh, advance the carbon uh, stocks of the soil and make it better. So actually, uh, a few animals running around is not a bad thing, uh, as most people know. But uh, no good if you're um, someone who wants to demonize red meat production. It's, it's a and, and even the live export into Indonesia, you know, it's under always under threat by activists. So, oh, I don't know, Jasper. It's, it's it's the same playbook, Don. At the same time, and I'm 
throwing a curveball here. There's a similar news coming from the UK that where a Norfolk state is planning to start farming for the environment rather than growing food. This is called the Langley Abbey Estate. It's going to create 600 acres of significantly nationally significant landscape and recovery habitats along the River Yare. And how will you do it? It will take away, take out 500 acres of arable fields from food production starting this autumn. So mm. time after time, country after country, continent oh. after continent, producers are being incentivized, forced, or being led down a path where they have no other option than to stop producing. There might be some who's who's seeing the carbon credits, but there's others whose margins have been so squeezed that they are just exiting yeah. en masse. Yeah. And, uh, you know, food, well, like it or not, you do need it. Be it, uh, I mean, unless you have a thing, particular thing for lab-based ones, food and the and energy, the dismantling of energy via this all this nonsense of green energy, which has to date not lived up to its much high promises, but to which taxpayers of nearly every country in the world have paid billions in subsidies towards. And we'll be having someone come in uh, towards the very end of the show today to speak, Mark Pay from Resistance Action Australia, who's been very active, his group has been very active there during the COVID period. But now they have turned their energies towards the state of uh, energy. Yeah, mm -hmm. their energy towards the state of energy. Well, wow. <laughs> uh, in Australia, and Mark will be coming on to speak about yeah. that. Yeah. But before that, we have another guest today, Barry Brill. He's the chairman of the New Zealand Sci Science, Science Coalition. Science Coalition. Yeah, yeah. He'll be coming on. And he is going to expose, uh, as he did, he's going to talk about what he exposed for the second time, um, the absurdity of the contribution or commitment that former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and Climate Minister, Climate Change Minister James Shaw uh, imposed in New Zealand's liability, really, uh, against New Zealand for the hopefully the way we were going to reduce our climate uh, emissions, our greenhouse yeah. gas emissions, our nationally determined contribution is what it's called. And of course, they decided to pledge uh, on top of that uh, $30 billion to the UNFCCC. And where that could be spent, who knows? Luckily, none of it has been sent over, uh, as it turns out. But mainstream media isn't even covering the story. Now, this is a really intense story that Barry uh, alerts, alerts us to in here. Uh, but he did alert the public to it in 2022 as well, and there was still no uptake. Mm. So what is it about $30 billion in pledges that doesn't spin your wheels as a New Zealand taxpayer? Oh, um, no. That is massive. As Barry highlights in his article, at $1.42 million uh, families in New Zealand and growing, that's $24,000 per family um, out the window for something we can't determine. So, yeah, look, we'll we'll take something, uh, take a break and lighten up a bit because this is a heavy interview. We'll be back after a break. Welcome back to RCR Greenwashed with Jasper Eaton Don. Uh, it's often, uh, well, it's not often the way that we get to have repeat guests, but um, here we are in 2024 and welcome back to our show, Barry Brill. Now, Barry's got a whole lot of credentials in the legal profession, being um, a master of commercial law, a Master of Law with Honours. He's been at the Harvard Business School and he's got a large background in the energy sector, including being the 
um, former Minister of Science, Technology and Minister of Energy in governments of about the mid-80s. So we welcome uh, Barry back because two weeks ago, uh, I came across an article that I'd missed originally, but on the 8th of February, he published an article with uh, Bassett, Brash and Hyde, and it's entitled Barry Brill, an Absurd Ardern Ambition. Now, that's quite an alliteration, four A's in a row there, two B's and four A's, but the story captured my imagination beyond belief. This show is looking for stories that pretty much are peak absurdity of the week. I think this is peak absurdity of the century. But Barry, welcome to the show. And we'd like you to sort of run through your discovery. And we're aware that you first came upon this in about 2022. And it sort of was brushed under the carpet. But in 2024, that just can't happen any longer, can it? So tell us about what it is. We're talking 30 billion, sort of a pledge on paper, but it's still a future liability on the books. What's it about? Well, thanks, Tom. Um, well, this is the NDC, which is the Nationally Determined Contribution, uh, which uh, each country makes uh, to the every other country uh, under the Paris Agreement uh, for the reduction of, uh, of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the... Um, the first NDC is for a period from 2021 to 2030, uh, and the Paris Agreement required countries to give an indication of what that would be uh, back in 2015, uh, and then to firm up and say uh, exactly how much they were prepared to promise uh, at the uh, Glasgow uh Conference of the Parties, the COP, uh, that was held in uh, 2021. Now, um, the so the NDC was is a voluntary amount which each country is expected to do its best. Uh, and so rather than uh, being a top-down thing, uh, the United Nations invites every country to say how much of a contribution they can make in their own country. Uh, and in New Zealand, the, uh, uh, the then climate minister, James Shaw, uh, requested the New Zealand Climate Commission to make a recommendation on this. Uh, and to calculate how much New Zealand would need to offer if it was to match the scenarios that were set out in a IPCC report. Um, that is the report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, in the, a special report that they did on the 1.5 degree target in 2019. Now, the Climate Commission duly reported and said that the uh, IPCC scenarios were not intended to be used for this purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, so they gave an amount, 
a very expensive amount, but said that New Zealand should really be aiming much lower than that uh, and uh, made a, uh, a recommendation uh, that we stay with the indication that had been given in 2015, which had in the meantime become very expensive indeed. Uh, it was now something of the order of uh, $12 billion to have met that uh, that target because circumstances had changed. So the, the, the Climate Commission uh, recommendation was duly reported to uh, James Shaw mm -hmm. and he and the Ministry uh, for the Environment uh, made a recommendation that the Climate Commission suggestions should be raised. Now, we, you need to understand that there's two different aspects of this thing. Primarily, over the 25-odd years that these types of commitments have been uh, put forward by governments, they have focused on what they can do in their own backyard, right? So the the objective really is that New Zealand should tell the United Nations how much we could manage to reduce emissions without causing undue uh, disasters within the economy. Uh, and so the Climate Commission made that determination and said that we could, within New Zealand, we could make a reduction of uh, 47 million tonnes from the uh, peak that we reached in about 2005. Now, that in itself is an ambitious target, and... We'll go about doing that by way of five-year budgets that the the commission recommends and the government has to approve. And over the next 15 years, the commission believes that we can reduce by 47 million tonnes. And I want to emphasise that that is in itself a very ambitious undertaking. But what was really unusual about what New Zealand did was we said over and above that ambition, over and above the reductions that we can make in New Zealand, we'll pay cash money to buy reductions from other countries. Wow. And the amount of that cash money was estimated by the Climate Commission uh, as being $240 a tonne because this is uh, these, these overseas emissions are hard to come by. Uh, and the, the Treasury argued that there were only $140 a tonne, but the Climate Commission said that we should allow $240 a tonne. Now, all of this was about buying emissions offshore, which is really not what the NDC is about. 
Yep. You know, the NDC is about what we can do, what we can do in New Zealand. And we already had an ambitious uh, goal to reduce by 47 million tonnes off the 2005 peak. All right, on top of that, the then minister, James Shaw, recommended that we step up to a, about 20 billion tonnes, dollars, to about 20 billion dollars of, um, of offshore purchases over the period to 2030 in order to retain our climate change world leadership. So those recommendations. This is getting very, very, this is getting very good. It's building to the, to the peak uh, listeners. This is Barry's um, done all the calculations and and modeling. So we're trying to, um, it's quite complex. So I hope they're sticking with us, but Barry, you get into the crescendo. Okay. In I'm sorry, I've I've, uh, dragged it out a bit, uh, made it a bit more suspense, Don. No, it's important. The point point was that the Climate Commission had made an ambitious suggestion. The Climate Commission was prepared to go along with buying offshore as well, but not very much. Then Minister Shaw and the Ministry up the ante and wanted to buy more offshore. And then they made the recommendations to Cabinet, and the last minute Treasury came in quite alarmed with a compromise suggesting uh, a smaller amount be purchased offshore. Uh, and to the amazement of all involved, the Cabinet up the ante even further wow. uh, and adopted a figure that was higher than what the uh, what James Shaw had asked for was doubled what the Climate Commission had uh, recommended uh, and amounted to over thirty billion dollars on the basis of the climate change of the Climate Commission's valuation. So, so that thirty billion dollars is a is a mind boggling sum, mm. uh, and. It wasn't what anybody was asking for. You know, it was higher than any of Anyone. the advisors or anybody else had even suggested. So they go, various numbers go into the cabinet and then this larger number comes out. So I have written about this, raising the question as to how could that happen could there be any explanation other than the fact that the members of the cabinet, in particular the prime minister, were very anxious to be seen as the world's leading climate change fighter uh, and was prepared to spend $30 billion of New Zealand taxpayers' money uh, in order to, uh, to earn that title uh for well uh, for herself or if you take the wider cabinet then for themselves uh i i don't see how anybody could argue that it was for the taxpayers of new zealand mm. because so, um 
what the New Zealand tax bag gets out of it is uh, nothing at all. Not so, a thing. Bar- so, Barry, just to reiterate, this was around, what, November 2021, I think, I read, and that was when New Zealand, I recall, was in sort of a lockdown mode uh, under the COVID response, and this was sort of done in Cabinet with what process? What process was there, apart from some advice from senior officials, what public process was there around this? Well, there was there was no public process. Uh, this was not a matter which had been uh, uh, canvassed during the uh, 2020 election. So it wasn't uh, a, a mandate from the people. people. Uh, there was no public consultation. Uh, there was no uh, prior public debate or discussion. Yep. A- as you you note, that it was in November 2021 when uh, the Auckland district was was locked down because of COVID, and because the Auckland MPs couldn't get to to Wellington, the Parliament was not in session. Okay. Uh, and uh, this, um, it, it might have been discussed in the uh, in the Labour caucus, but uh, there isn't any record of that. Uh, and there was certainly no bipartisan consultation or multi-partisan consultation. Uh, and uh, the then the cabinet chose to. Uh, override the Advice Climate from Change Treasury. Commission and double the amount of uh, of their recommendation. Uh, and and the point the point of it that that really sticks in my craw is the huge amount of dollars we're talking about. We you know we are told that our infrastructure problems are overwhelming. Our education system needs to be totally rebuilt. Uh, Hospitals. Our, um, yeah, and their hospitals and health system requires an awful lot of um, uh, investment. Uh, and uh, what we are now faced with is taking $30 billion and giving it away. And as you've explained, Barry, this is a lot. This has been a long, drawn out process. You've, you know, you've taken the time to explain this in depth. So this one can't say that this was an oversight. It would have gone through so many iterations and reiterations. The one thing that comes out of this for me, clear as day, is that this was deliberate. Uh, well, the, the decision of the cabinet was deliberate. Deliberate. Um, Going against uh, the advice from Treasury. Uh, well, it was against the advice of Treasury. It was against yeah. the advice of the Climate Change Climate Commission. Commission. Uh, and it was not uh, in consultation with the the government that would have to deliver on it, which is the subsequent government, mm. the uh, the government that was elected in 1923, 1926, 1929 would have to deliver on this, but it was the government of 1921 which made the promise. 2021. 2021. Oh, yeah, 2021. Let, let's put a 20 in front of all of those previous numbers, but hey, we get your point, Mary, we get your point. It's it's an absolute scandal. It's, um, you know, my private opinion on this is that I've witnessed uh, 
leaders in recent years trying to pee higher than everybody else in this in this space. And it's like the former prime minister decided to pee higher than her minister, James Shaw. Um, what is the, so far, I gather there's no money changed hands and it's perhaps not likely that it'll be changed hands, but the pledge or the donation is still in the Crown accounts as a future liability. Is that right? Uh, yes, uh, and, and and it's noted in the government books as a future liability, but the, the, the formal budget that the government has to bring down each year mm-hmm. stretches ahead for four years. Uh, so that it can't, it we're going to have to be brought into that budget uh, not later than 2026, and it shouldn't escape the attention of Nicola Willis, who whose budget it will be, who is also the associate minister of climate change, that her 2026 budget in election year is going to have to make provision for this $30 billion over a four-year period at that time. Now, it seems to me that the last thing this government wants to do is to wait until election year uh, to to start trying to sell this idea to the public. Mm. You know, again, I stress this is not a, uh, uh, a requirement. This is a donation. This is a voluntary donation. And I just don't see how the national government, the national-led government, can win an election on the basis that it thinks that the $30 billion should be given away rather than spent on New Zealand's requirements. I know, completely. Yes, so I agree with that too. But just for the layman and me, and I don't understand the political process, we set down budgets that come out generally in May each year, national you know, government budgets, countries' budget. Why wouldn't we be talking to try or trying to get this out of the regime this May? Why wouldn't we try to get that future liability just written out? Well, that's what should be done. The the uh, uh, the new government should uh, should undertake first an inquiry into how this came to be, uh, have some public debate, public consultation on it, uh, and I believe the obvious outcome will be that the new government will need to advise the United Nations that it can't afford that crazy uh, one-off promise made by their predecessor in 2021. Uh, and that we won't be, they, we shouldn't be counted on for uh, for that huge investment. So, where tell me, in any of the other supposedly high emitting countries or other countries that we are sort of trade with, perhaps more to the point, how many of them are meeting their commitments that they have made, or have they not made such uh, grandiose commitments? Well, could could I make? Two points, Don. The first is that the ministry advised the cabinet that the um, what they call responsibility uh, commitment, which is 
saying we'll take responsibility for this even though we won't do it ourselves, like we will buy offshore credits, hmm. uh, that those are not intended to be part of the Paris Agreement approach. They were part of the Kyoto approach. They're not intended to be part of the Paris Agreement approach. Uh, and they should only be used at the margin, you know, sort of for for rounding uh, areas or, or uh, you know, for, for special circumstances. So the first answer to your question is that no other country out of the 190-odd who are uh, members of the of the Paris Agreement have made uh, large promises for offshore credits. Only New Zealand. New Zealand is the sole country okay, who has made a a commitment to offshore credits, which is about two or three times higher, three times higher than the commitment we've made to on what we'll do onshore in our own domestic savings. Uh, you know, we, we are saying we'll do our domestic savings, we'll do three times as much offshore. Nobody else has done anything like that. Nobody's done anything more than, other than a very, very minor offshore component. So we stand alone. We're an out, complete outlier in that regard. Um, the second part of your question is, is anybody else on track to meet the commitments they have made uh, and uh, according to the uh, United Nations Environmental Programme report, the, the GAP report, as it's called, that was given to the Dubai COP in December, uh, there are none. Uh, no country is on track. Uh, no developed country uh, is on track to uh, so far to meet its uh in DC, it's a uh, uh, it's voluntary uh, promise. Well, and yet here we are committing to do this. Just this last week, I was uh, reading the news, and there was talk about, and this came from our came out from the ACT Party as well as you know when they scrapped three waters, saying that now councils need to form you know water companies, council controlled organisations, and that there might be a need for public private partnership to fund the infrastructure gap. And yet here we are squandering billions of taxpayer money. Can I do I dare call it money laundering? I'll call it Let's, brainwashing. Brainwashing. So we're, yeah, it is. And I mean, we are going to borrow that money. We are going to privatize water and you know healthcare. Even the very basic things that a first world country should have, and that's where our tax should be going first and foremost. For that, we are going to be looking for public-private partnerships. And yet here we are. I can't think of greater treasons. Well, it's a very good point, just briefly. The $30 billion that we're going to donate to uh, these offshore um, schemes, uh, we'll be borrowing that money offshore in order to make the donation uh, because we need to borrow all that and, and, and probably more uh, to meet our water yeah. and other infrastructure but deficits. I mean, the gold-plated water standards that we are wanting now, gold-plated, literally, well, pushing up more into debt. Yep, uh, absolutely, um, Jaspreet. You see it for what it is. And by the way, listeners, we're speaking to Barry Brill, who is chairman of the New Zealand Climate Science Coalition and a former minister of the Crown. 
he has really just gone through what is appears to the layman a really convoluted system that would have most of us glazed over. And so I take my hat off to Barry to for his tenacity to to follow this stuff, uh, like some of the senior government officials like like Adrian Macy and Dave Frame. But doesn't it really expose the sort of unreality of what is touted daily as an existential threat? It's just there's so much folly in all of this stuff that the layman in the street can't follow it. We've trusted these officials for years. Um, we trusted a prime minister. We've trusted successive prime ministers, actually. <laughs> and um, and it all appears now to be rather hollow. So I look at it this way, Barry. We've got net zero concepts in New Zealand. But, you know, and I often think, what's the other NZ? And I think it's like... Um, uh, New Zillionaires, but I'm not quite sure where the New Zillionaires live. So we've got <laughs> NZ to the power of three. But see, that's I often get this question asked of me, Barry. Where does the money go? How does all this uh, CO2 trading go? Where, you know, where does the money go for CO2 credits and, and um, units? And I've never been able to answer. Can you? Well, the money goes to the... A uh, company uh, that has undertaken mm. to plant uh, yes. 100,000 trees in uh, China or uh, or in Europe or or wherever. Mm. Uh, the uh, I think the the point's worth making that even though this 30 billion dollars is a huge sum for New Zealand, that the amount that the world will need to spend. A, for, according to McKinsey, to achieve net zero is something like $50 trillion uh, by 2050. So this $30, that $30 billion that uh, the Labour government proposed to donate to uh, various schemes around the world for uh, uh, for reducing emissions, that amount of emissions is a drop in the bucket. Uh, we, we, you know, our our total our total emissions are zero point one six percent of yep. the world's total emissions. So this thirty billion won't change the world's climate by even a thousandth of a degree. It won't make any difference to the world's climate. So we, we don't do anything for the climate. The money goes to various faceless people all around the world who are going to supposedly do emission-reducing projects. Uh, and the only real, visible, tangible impact is that New Zealand families are going to be facing that much more hardship, that much more child poverty, uh, and all of our infrastructure and housing problems and so forth uh, are put to one side in favour of making this $30 billion donation. And you've quantified that, Barry, that each family, looking at 1.42 million families in New Zealand, that's roughly each one of them it's going to cost them. 
just over $24,000 each. Yeah, $24,000 yeah. for, for your average for family. For what? They can't find $24,000. They can't find it. They can't find uh, it, but the government finds it really easy. It's so easy to spend someone else's money, isn't it? Make commitments, virtue signal, maybe land it. We'll find a way job. to get that $24,000 out of them. Yeah, it has yeah. to be. Well, yeah. it's the it's the ultimate uh, virtue signal, but I think it's it's the ultimate peak absurdity too. And uh, you know, when you look at the uh, fiscal management of the country in the last uh, four years, uh, you do have to wonder if fish and chip wrapping in Morrinsville really did uh, sort of create a lot of credentials that that are suitable for a prime minister. I mean, it just beggars belief the damage that's happened in this country. And this is just one more absurd bit of nonsense in my my point of view. And I know our listeners know that I'm terribly biased. I haven't have a clear um, <laughs> thought process on this stuff. Um, and I, I'm just appalled, Barry, that that it takes your tenacity to get this in front of us and the news, and I have just done the research again. The New Zealand mainstream media has not picked this up. Have you noted anyone well, I, pick it up? No, no, no. Uh, I uh, since I wrote the article, uh, and it's available on the internet, and I and it's had thousands of views. Uh, it has gone right over the heads of every journalist in New Zealand. Uh, and I, I should uh, come back to a point that I think you made, Don, that uh, most of this material uh, was published in the Business Desk, which is a subsidiary of the New Zealand Herald, in uh, 2022, uh, in a series of five major articles in five successive uh, issues of the Business Desk, written by uh, Adrian Macy, Mm. Uh, who is the most credible uh, climate change diplomat in New Zealand. He was our first climate change ambassador. He's now an adjunct professor at Victoria University, lecturing in and teaching uh, climate science uh, international negotiation. Uh, and he was joined in this series by uh, Professor David Frame. Uh, who is probably New Zealand's uh, premier climate scientist. And these two authors wrote about this very same uh, process that, that I have uh, now written about in 2022, uh, but it's behind a paywall and most uh New Zealanders, you know, a relatively small number of New Zealanders will have read that. However, it was sensational at the time, but it wasn't picked up by the Herald, the owner of Business Desk. It wasn't picked up by, by the television companies. wasn't picked up by any of the mainstream media. Now, they might have said, oh, we think Adrian Macy's got it wrong. Well, they should report that Adrian Macy got it wrong. Instead, there's silence. Silence. And that, silence. that's telling. That's telling. I The article on, uh, you know, Brashet uh, and com. this has had over 13,000 views. It, the, what's most interesting on this one is uh, the comments. There's over 200 comments on their article, and there's quite a debate going on there. But someone else also hasn't picked this up yet, gentlemen. That's the National Party. That's a coalition now. 
Well, we're hoping they will. Yeah, that's another one well, where I hear silence right now. Well, in in my view, this uh, contribution, this donation, mm. uh, cannot stand. Yeah, I, I just don't believe it's possible for the government to take the people with it uh, on a $30 billion donation that we don't need to make. Uh, you can't have Nicholas, Nicola Willis saying we are asking every government department to cut their expenditures by 7%. Uh, we are going to reduce the, the numbers in the public service. We're going to have to have an austerity program. Uh, we don't see any increase in revenue in looking forward, uh, but we must maintain this $30 billion we're going to give away to various sharp operators in, um, all around the world who are offering to sell uh, climate credits. Now, I just don't believe that's politically possible. And therefore, the only alternative is that the, the government is going to need to reverse that uh, NDC and it's going to need to advise other countries of its intention to do so. Now, I think it's very much in the interest of the new government to do that early. Yeah. Because now it's obvious that this is something which the new government had nothing to do with. It was driven by the ambitions of, uh, of a government which has now been voted out of office. Uh, but if they don't do it early, if they don't do it, this year and quite quickly, it will become, they will have to wear it. It will become their promise, which they've adopted. Uh, and uh, and then and they'll wear the blame for it. So I really think politically it's in their interest to step up to, step up yep. to the plate and bite the bullet, if I might mix some metaphors. So, yeah, so what what is the fallout for that uh, in terms of our trade, potentially? Because I know that's what they're going to do. They're going to say, oh, this will put serious tension on our trade um, with with the countries uh, in, just, you know, in the same sort of ballpark as us. Um, I, uh, well, I think, I think that's gobbledygook, Don. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who who will now stop eating butter? Uh, is it... The, the the we our our products have a lower carbon footprint than any other product in the international market. So, why would people decide to move from New Zealand sourcing to some other source which has a higher carbon footprint? Oh, oh, because they may wish to say just play games with the tension that this could create. I mean, we've heard from successive ministers of climate change and ministers of trade that if we don't tick this climate box and have a high ambition, we will have trade uh, barriers put upon us. And, you know, I think that's the game that will play next, Barry. I know you're far more seasoned than I am in this, this space, but um, I just, I agree, the other countries may not have any better credentials than us, but it's the gaming that will happen, especially when you look at what's going on in Europe right now with regard to uh, the farmer protests who are really looking to protect themselves in their own, within their own borders. You can't sort of blame them. They want to have effectively sovereignty of their, of their products to be sold locally. And we've got to try and enter those markets. Uh, 
you know, and I think they could make it more difficult. And I, you know, I'm, I know I'm positing a whole, whole lot of um, ex- perhaps extreme ideas, but I think the WTO is under serious um, threat right now with regard to the way the farmer protests of the European countries, let alone the Indian countries, uh, let alone India, are, are playing their cards. They want more protection, protectionism back. At the same time, we want free enterprise to flourish in the world and free trade. Right. But look, the answer the answer done to that argument is that we won't I am not suggesting that we change by one iota the very ambitious program we have for reduction of emissions in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the donation to people outside New Zealand sure. uh, that we and that that really we're the only people who uh, doing this old-fashioned idea of trying to buy credits on the international market. You know, other countries are not doing that. All we would be doing would be ceasing our role as an outlier and coming back into line with Australia and Canada and the UK and every other developed country uh, by f- saying we'll focus on trying to achieve our ambitious domestic program. We won't be spending New Zealand money on buying offshore credits? Well, two things. Um, um, I think the difference is we're already subsidy-free in this country. Uh, a lot of the countries we trade with are, uh, are subsidised. Uh, it doesn't matter whether they're production, subsidized, production subsidies or environmental subsidies. So that's we're already at a very high standard. We've already got the gold standard internationally, so we don't actually have to do much. The second point we need to do, and I know the Climate Coalition is helping in this vein is to make sure we get the methane metric right. Um, if there is a metric at all, it's above zero. Um, but, uh, you know, so all those things have to be fixed before I think we can get some peace on this and get New Zealand back on track uh, to be a, a very efficient exporting nation. Um, well, I, you know, if we were to use the metric we, we know that the IPCC has said that we are overcounting our emissions, uh, our methane emissions, by four to five times. Mm. So as the those em- methane emissions are about half of our total, it means that our total is about twice as high uh, as it should be. Mm. So if we were to put that right, then that would more than offset the $30 billion, right? The, 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 the offer of, uh, of reducing uh, the, the world's emissions by 143,000 metric ton, million tons, 143 million tons, which is what uh, the $30 billion equates to. So instead of doing the 143 million tons, We'll just simply get our counting right and knock off 300 million tons. I think, what you're both, what you're, I think what you're both <laughs> saying, gentlemen, is that all we need is some honesty, some truth, pretty much. Isn't it? Yeah. That's all we are asking for right we now. We need a reality check. That's what we need, a reality check. And so, Well, if, if we were to use the IPCC figure, uh, which we do for everything else, for methane, then uh, the outcome would be a very ambitious outcome indeed. 
and mm. we are the one country that is hellbent on using the most extreme modeling, most extreme model that IPCC has provided, RCP 8.5, which for listeners pretty much means that we will not be doing anything. 10 billion people on this planet and business as usual, which we know is not happening. A lot of things have changed. And that is why much of what the hysteria that's being whipped up in New Zealand, both in, you know, NGOs and the local and central government is all due to a lie being perpetuated time and time again. Yep. So look, I think that's a good spot to end. Um, we've had a great chat with you, Barry, uh, Barry Brill. Uh, great to have you on our show again. It's a complex subject that you have talked about on our show. And, you know, the way uh, Jaspreet's just sort of analysed it, I'm on the same place. Uh, I don't think it needs to be so complex. It's quite simple. Uh, we just need some honesty and some integrity. And I think we'd go back to business as usual and let's get on with life. Uh, but for 25 years, we've had this coming at us and internationally we're seeing the pointy end with some protests in uh, not only Europe, into America, Canada, India, and even Australia. I think real people have had a gutsful and let's hope so we can get some some sanity. Um, sanity back so yeah barry thanks for your time and we look forward to speaking to you again when we fix all this we'll have a celebration <laughs> it's a pleasure Don. and just Cheer thank you cheers to that thank you so much barry check out our brand new rcr foundation members club go to www.realitycheck.radio members and join now Welcome back to Greenwashed. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Barry Brill. And uh, hopefully you were a bit outraged seeing at what is promised to our lords and masters at the United Nations in terms of our nationally determined contributions towards mitigating this climate change. Now, the key word there that Barry said was that this was all voluntary. We didn't need to do this, Don, or not to that same extent, did we? Well, and all the advice, even from his treasure, from Treasury, was to was about half what they talk about, and even a quarter of what they talked about, and it was completely overruled so by a select group spend. of Kent. So easy well, to spend other people's money, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's a that's a hospitals, roading, everything be damned. Let's let's just you know sell everything out to the United and, Nations and do it and do it while we were in lockdown in Auckland. There was zero consultation, zero process, apart from the in-house processes with Treasury, and then ignore Treasury advice. And even when I looked at the matrix that was in Barry's article, it was uh, the IPCC would not have even uh, wanted anything like this as a contribution. So, you know, it was just outlandish virtue signaling. I've had people say to me, it's, it was like an attempt at economic sabotage. James said and, much. And, and, you know, when you look at our, our crown accounts now, you know, imagine the 30 billion being in there. And they are, it is in there. It's still in the future liability costings. So uh, I hope the new government just gets it out. Now, what's the up? And we talked about this in the interview. What's the upshot of this? Take it out. 
You can just hear the howls of protests from um, the countries we trade into saying, yeah. New Zealand's not meeting its targets. Let's put a tariff on them because they're not meeting their not targets. Not meeting their targets because we promised. We overpromised that. Overpromised. Yeah. It's been a constant refrain from uh, especially Minister, former Minister James Shaw that, oh, we've got to do this for our trade. And it's come from all political parties, actually. This is a very damaging concept to get out of, that we have to get out of, but it will be damaging on the way, in my opinion. So it's going to show, we're going to have to see in the next few months, you know, the 100 days is getting up, coming close to over, but we're going to have to see real strong leadership by this government on this sort of Yes. Large yes, large yes by the former government. Yeah. So I mean, and I, I, on the slide, but there's something I'm going to plagiarize today. Uh, Don and I, are, I'm, I'm speaking for you as well. I think we both subscribe to Roger Pialki Jr. Yes. And he's got a substack called The Honest Broker. He's from the States. And, you know, Barry spoke about nationally determined contributions and the absurdity of it. And Roger Pialki on his substack, the honest broker uses an analogy that I really liked mm. about the stupidity of all of us trying to do our own little bit to somehow sort the world out. He says that, and I'm going, I'm going to tr- pretty much read uh, verbatim from an, a recent article of his. He says, imagine that nations around the world decide they want to increase human lifespans. They might start their work by deciding on a goal today. The world average age is about 69 years. One nation might say, let's try a 75-year lifespan. Others might say, that's not ambitious enough. Let's press for 85 years by 2050. We could spend a great amount of time arguing there. But then let's say the countries of the world agree upon a target. One way to reach it would be to put an economic price on death. Countries would be responsible for paying some amount when someone dies. There could be a death tax or even more creatively, a cap on the number of allowable deaths in every country every year. And this cap would be decreasing just like we have. We cap our emissions and they're decreasing how much we are allowed to do. Maybe countries could be number one levied. You know, if they have debts, they have to pay an amount and then they have to reduce the annual number of deaths. If one country experiences more deaths than they have permits for, they'll have to buy permits from other countries with a lower death rate and who would have surplus permits. Advocates for this approach would claim the cap would stimulate, and that's the always the argument, isn't it? The cap would stimulate innovation in medical research and prompt behavioral changes that would lead to longer life expectancies. This permit market on your debts would mean that the market would decide how resources are allocated and so on. The legal cap would provide certainty in achieving the targeted extensions of life expectancies. Do you think I've you know, gone off my rocker? Does that sound absurd? Well, it is absurd. And that's how absurd are these nationally determined voluntary contributions at the altar of which our government decided $30 billion of our taxpayer money. That's a good use for it. Yeah. And at, at every conference of the party, they always make these not, they're actually non-binding um offers uh some people say they're binding but there's no country in the world that's met their targets yet but new zealand says it will and will pay dearly for it i mean the virtue signaling from this country yeah sure we're a little island country in the bottom of the pacific and sure we trade a lot of produce to the world but 
um, I can't see one more dime coming into the pockets of New Zealand producers from all this virtue signaling, but I can see a heck of a lot of dollars cost paying all the people that are in this this dirty, muddy paddock of climate change. And so, look, let's hope we can get some common sense back soon. But Roger Pialki Jr. writes a book uh, called The Climate Fix Book Club. And that was from chapter nine that um, Jasper was reading from. So maybe you have to go and read the book if you want more. But Or his Substack. Subscribe his substack. to a Substack, yeah. The Honest Broker. Yep. And it's fabulous. I won't say I agree with 100% Roger Pialki thinks. Well, but then I probably don't agree with everything uh, you think, Don. And, no, you know, that's the way it should a, be. That's the way it should be. And interestingly, we've talked about Roger Pialki Jr. in the past and many others like him. They show clearly, uh, contrary to everything you hear in mainstream media in New Zealand, that floods and uh, mayhem on on the river, river plains and coastal uh, strips is not increasing in the last 100 years. In fact, it's decreased significantly. But what has occurred, the way I analyse it, is that because we're, there's a lot more people living in these regions, the, the total cost to individuals and infrastructure is much higher because we're now more populous. Mm. So, um, but not that you hear that in New Zealand. You wouldn't hear that in New Zealand's mainstream media. It's constantly about there's more floods, there's more... Um, tornadoes, there's more hurricanes, there's more tsunamis, there's more earthquakes, there's more, more, more. The only thing Roger Pialki does agree with is that the temperature has risen about uh, 1.2, I think it is, degrees uh, the last 100 years. 100 years. So, um, but the RCP 8.5 that your council, Jaspreet, and every council in New Zealand is working towards uh, saving ourselves from um, all these catastrophes, they use this representation concentration pathway, Oh, and there's another name, SESPs as well, if you want to get into the economic pathways. Uh, um, and it's just wrong. Nowhere else but, in the world is willing to go to this extreme, but New Zealand is going to the top of every table possible at great cost. So let me paraphrase that for the layman listener. Uh, Don just referred to when he said my council, it is actually every council because the Ministry of Environment of New Zealand has accepted the worst doom and gloom scenario presented by United Nations, which is colloquially called RCP 8.5. It is actually, it should be called absurd, scenario absurd, uh, which has the basic assumption there'll be 10 billion of us soon and it'll be business as usual. No one will be controlling, um, mm -hmm. you know, mitigating their emissions. So, and it has, United Nations has warned countries not to use this for policy. This is just for stress testing. But hey, guess what? Because we are aiming the highest, we want to, we have leaders of globalist ambitions. We have used this particular model for all our business as usual, council, national government, center government policies. Mm. And I say shame on everybody that's doing this and getting paid for this misinformation. Uh, shame on them. They're taking a paycheck under false pretense. Um, and shame and on everyone, everyone in government who goes along with this, be it either of your ignorance that you have not bothered to read the IPCC papers and yet when the papers come across your table, you just sign them and you expect that a bureaucrat somewhere has done the right by you and you no longer need to read it. Shame on everyone who's refusing to do their homework on this. Yeah. Yeah. So look, uh, I called it a peak absurdity of the week in Barry's show, uh, that segment with Barry. I've, I've used that term a lot. 
Uh, and I, I, I'm not going to de- uh, back down from that. It's a peak absurdity of the century, actually. Yeah. There's been some bad stuff happened in the last few years uh, and the damage to the Crown accounts. But this is peak absurdity that Barry talked about. Roger Pialki's given us um, a sort of an angle on and Mark Pay has really uh, hammed it up about what's going on in Australia. And, you know, having just been a recent visitor to Australia and going down the coast uh, between Brisbane and Sydney and see, and staying at Port Macquarie, actually, a lovely place, you know, really lovely place. Um, there is no need to put wind turbines out at sea and there's no need to put wind turbines uh, miles from where they could get easy access to the grid. So Australians are rightfully concerned. I mean, no one's saying they don't need a national grid, but having this stuff um, built away from the current thoroughfares for electricity just seems a bit odd. Or do they have plans of mass migration and having people move there? Uh, Playing the devil's advocate here, Don. Well, of course, they've they've got mass migration happening now. I mean, they, um, I think they're about six times the size of five times as much as us in the last 12 months. And New Zealand, uh, listeners, 145,000 net migrants came to New Zealand in the last 12 months to, I think, the end of December. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was significantly up on what was first talked about a year ago when we first started this show. Uh, in fact, it was more than double. And it's even gone up since we last talked about it because we last talked about it where it was 118,000. Now it's 145. Now, our city is, uh, nearest city is Invercargill and it's 50,000 people. So we've had four, uh, three Invercargill cities of new people come to the country. Uh, have we built three times the infrastructure or was our infra- infrastructure so underutilized? Well, that's not how it seems to me. We're stretched. Oh. And of course, of course, the property developers are loving it. Loving and, it. The real estate agents are loving it. And, and, you know, actually, the governments are loving it too, because as John and I will speak about in the me, uh, in the NGO spotlight segment towards the very end, after Mark Pace, uh, we chat to him this morning. Uh, some of these people, some of the migrants coming in, form NGOs. They form NGOs that help further push the government's narrative. So I can see at some points the attractiveness of having mass migrations and having people who will just go along with the narrative and hopefully just ramp it up a bit further down people's throats. And the government is achieving that. And that's after the break. Before that, uh, we will have Mark Payne from Resistance Action Australia. Enjoy that. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back. You're with Greenwash. I'm Jaspreet Boparai here with my co-host, Don Nicholson. Hope you're doing well this morning and you're certainly, hopefully, having a better day than I am weather-wise. I don't know about you, Don, but for me, this has been the coldest February I can remember in New Zealand because I moved from the Northern Hemisphere, so I know cold Februaries. But I could do with some global warming about now. Yeah, well, look, you've just been spoiled over the recent years. I mean, the South Coast isn't, uh, you know, without a close to Antarctica, you can't expect to have it all one way, Jasper. So, a summer, summer, a few weeks down, is that too much to ask? Well, we had it till Christmas Day, but it's it's sort of gone, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah. But yeah. staying indoors, I, Don and I were speaking last week also about, you know, he and I managed to get some reading done over summer. And I mentioned Substacks because I seem to be accumulating subscriptions to quite a few of them. 
One of those that caught my attention over summer was the substack called Resistance Action Australia. They described themselves as, we are a very small group of freedom-minded patriots resisting the takeover of Australia by neo-Marxist globalist, globalist elites. Yeah, that is, that's someone speaking my language. And today, Don and I are very happy to welcome on one of the small team, Mark Pei. Mark is an Australian technology entrepreneur and political activist, and he's had a long history of resisting, resisting government policy because he began at the age of 13 during the Vietnam War. He's been at the front lines during the COVID era and now has a special interest in exposing Australian energy-related issues. You might sense a bit of a Yank accent there, but welcome, Mark. We're so happy to have you on. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you both, Jasper and Don. So it was, it was good to come across your Substack uh, earlier this year or a few weeks back. And uh, some very, I, I would say you don't faff around your words. You put it out very clearly in unscathing terms about what you think about this nonsense going on right now. Have you always been that forthright? I, I, that's exactly the right place to start because uh, I actually have nothing but contempt for uh, the the leadership and how they attempt to talk to us, infantilize us, and and treat us uh, as though we are not intelligent. And uh, so I, I also believe in calling things what they are. Mm -hmm. uh, so as an example, uh, you know, we have policies that are coming in here in Australia that are Marxist policies. And we think the people that espouse them should stand up and say proudly, you know, this is a socialist policy, this is a Marxist policy, and now now they want to defend it. So we really um, think it's appropriate to call things what they are. Let's name what they are. Yeah. And so um, really have taken that point of view. Um, we also um, are big believers in the power of ridicule. Uh, and we think that the program they have for us is ridiculous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is a, a, a really effective way to um, to expose some of that, uh, you know, through humor. And so we try. Right. <laughs> um, You're doing really well there. And yeah. And, and, and I actually agree. The power of ridicules is a powerful, powerful tool. I've um, often been lobbying uh, and you do the nice uh, and, and it is respectful the way we all should interact with people anyway. But sometimes, you know, that there uh, people on the other side are just treating you with contempt and um, ridicule is fabulous. But I also think when there gets to be a point when you need to humiliate them. And, uh, you know, I we've got a part on our show called Peak Absurdity of the Week, and uh, we're going to constantly bring up those people that do bring out absurd policies. And in your country, Australia, um, I've watched Sky TV for 20 years probably, and the peak absurdity that comes out loud and clear is around the renewable uh, push and the climate change push and the net zero. And, of course, we had... Um, your Prime Minister Albanese and, and Chris Bowen saying every Australian was going to have a uh, $275 reduction in their power bill. Um, I'll be intrigued to know when that's going to happen, when clearly you have uh, significantly higher energy costs each year, um, going back 20 years now. Uh, you might want to talk about that, flesh that out, uh, Mark. Yeah, I'm happy to. So before we get there, I would um, mention kind of peak absurdity. So uh, we had John Kerry in the U.S. Senate a couple of months ago, and they asked him, OK, so it, if it were true that carbon dioxide was going to kill everybody, uh, how much will this cost? And he stated with a straight face, 
he said, well, we think it's between two and a half and four and a half trillion dollars per year, every year until the year 2050. Okay. Now, when I was growing up, someone making a statement like that, they would submit them for antipsychotic medication. No, this is uh, that's utterly ridiculous. And if we can't, as a society, stand up and say that is a ridiculous statement from a ridiculous person, yeah. So we we will continue to be run by clowns, and so that idea of ridicule and clowning and things like this, we think is really powerful. Now, here in Australia, it's a bit different, quite a bit different from New Zealand. You guys have uh, you know lots of hydropower. Uh, we are. Uh, uh, we were blessed with the lowest power rates in the world, cheapest power in the world, because we have an abundance really of coal and natural gas, all kinds of resources, really. Um, so we have gone from the cheapest power in the world to the most expensive. Now, it, during that during that process, we have our major politicians from both sides of the aisle saying to us day in and day out that renewables are cheaper. Well, the evidence would seem to be, you know, to, to point you in the opposite direction of that. And so um, it, it, it is embarrassing. Um, now, you had, for example, um, uh, you had the uh, professor emeritus from University of Oxford that points out the reason that renewables cost so much. Yeah? Why is it so expensive to get this otherwise free power from the sun? <laughs> and the answer is that it's incredibly weak power. Yeah? The sun is 93 million miles away. And so to get any kind of power from that via wind or via direct solar is incredibly difficult and expensive. Uh, if you compare that to the power that is, uh, for example, that mankind was able to unleash uh, in the you know hydrocarbon world, you know this is that that is an amazing source of power that I pe I think people you know forget. You, know, you can rock up to the petrol pump, you can put a substance in your vehicle that will that once you unlock the power inside of that, it will power your vehicle you know in, in almost unlimited fashion. You know, as compared to you know an electric car, you know our view on the electric cars is that they peaked in 1905. Uh, and so, and, 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 you know, so they were outcompeted by the internal combustion engine. So if you decided that, oh, we have to change everything because CO2, let's say you came to that conclusion. I think we're all people of good faith. If we were really shown evidence to that effect, you know, we would be willing to say, okay, we have to admit it, we have to do something. Yeah. If you decided you had to do something about it, the first thing you'd ask is what would you do? Would you spend two and a half or four and a half trillion dollars per year every year in, until the year 2050? Or would you do what we've always done as a species, which is adaptation? Adaptation. Yeah. Uh, now, HSBC Bank had a head of sustainability who raised his hand and said, look, my team have done all the accounting, all the projecting. We think uh, we think adapting to this is sort of a hundred times cheaper. And that's if you took the premise that CO2 was going to somehow change the climate. Um, now, um, you, you know, and so there there are so many facets of how uh, this hoax, right? we talk about calling something what it is. Yeah. Right? This is a hoax. Yeah. And um, there are so many facets of how they've constructed this hoax. We have to poke holes in those one by one. Now, one of their main claims is that uh, 97% of scientists 
you know, agree. Oh my goodness, right. 97% of scientists. Well, they actually did a study. Yeah. So that was a study out of University of Queensland. They looked at 11,600, you know, papers and they came to some st statistical conclusion. Well, they studied that study and they said, wait a minute, that, that those studies that you're citing don't conclude that at all. They brought this to the attention of the Queensland police. And the Queensland police agreed that, yes, a fraudulent deception had taken place, but the perpetrators had since left the country, so there's nothing to be done about it. So I think those of us in kind of, let's call it the climate truth movement, really need to be attacking the very core premises of this thing, the 97% claim, the renewables are cheaper claim. Because what they do is they set those up as a foundation and then they step up on that block and then they step on the next block and the next and the next. They build their arguments build, from a false premise. So, yeah. Yeah, and no one ever premise. ever questions the premise, the premise, do they, Don? Right. I mean, if carbon right. dioxide was that bad, we wouldn't be pumping it into greenhouses. Uh, if rising CO2 was that bad, because that's what they tell farmers, you're the ones who are going to be most impacted by climate change. God damn it, do something. Well, it is greening the earth. The latest report by CSIRO, that's uh, the, what is that stand for? That's the Commonwealth Research and yeah, Industrial right. Research peak, Organization. CSIRO. It's the peak scientific body in Australia. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So if I get this right, that's a Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, CSIRO. We have proof that it's actually greening the earth. We're getting more vegetation. That's, that's we might just get we might just get more uh, agricultural output uh, there. Oh, Jasper, that's an inconvenient truth. And um, the other inconvenient truth is that uh, every time they these uh, alarmists talk about this, they talk about carbon pollution. Uh, well, first that conjures up the idea of grey and black and you know horrible sooty sort of atmosphere. Then they um, put up pictures of of. Um, chimney stacks putting up um, water vapour, um, but sort of have them cl cloudy or a little bit cloudy. And, uh, of course, we we know they mean the carbon dioxide, which is actually, as yeah. you just said, clear trace gas uh, fertiliser of life. So you're having all that in Australia. Um, we're having it all here. We've got the farmers in this country being vilified for um, methane and nitrous oxide emissions. Uh, I think you've batted it down the road a little bit, but we still think we've got to do something. So, you know, the peak ridicule, how can we get to peak ridicule about this stuff? Because um, Chris Bowen, your Minister for Energy, isn't going away. We know that uh, low-cost energy and abundant energy is the um, is the basis for a flourishing economy. Um what is it that's going to be useful to needle them with to turn this back? What can we do? Yeah, look, I, I guess, you know, this is one of the points that we take a lot of time thinking about. And I think anybody in the truth movement takes a lot of time thinking about is how do we how do we, you know, dig us yeah. our way out of this? Uh, and I think um, it, it is uh, it is very much one person at a time. Uh, and you, I don't think you try to move people from A to Z. I think you try to move them from A to B. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, once they are open to asking a question, yeah, well, if renewables are cheaper, then why is your bill up 40 percent in the last two years? I mean, if they're open to asking themselves the question and then open to receiving the information, right? if you can get people to ask, be willing to ask a question almost every time the research that they end up doing, the answers they end up getting will lead them to the camp that is the, you know, kind of the, the normies camp where where those of us in the reality-based community are, are still have our feet planted. 
So yeah, um, yeah, of, co- of course. In in and I've noted in Australia, especially um, the leafy suburbs of Sydney or Melbourne, you know, the where the 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 wealthy end of town is, um, they just buy into this fully. There's hardly any resistance there politically. They uh, the teals got into into power um, and. Hopefully not for long. Perhaps that's my bias, um, but they're um, they've they've certainly had a say, and and it's like this hasn't hit them yet. So are you saying it's when it hits the mums and dads um, grafting away, trying to make a living for their family, or it hit, it hits industry to the point where it just shuts down? Well, we get a reality check then. Yeah, look, I think it it is really a combination of both things. So it is hitting everyone's pocketbook today. And I don't think people realize the extent to which they pay for uh, for the renewable, you know, belief system today. Now we are paying it, and we're paying it in the form of inflation, as an example. Now uh, we're, you know, so we're paying it straight on the power bill. Um, we also have uh, some real logical disconnects. So, for example, we have here in Australia, we have. Uh, plans going ahead uh, to install renewables capacity. So we have a 9,000 hectare, uh, 9,000 hectares of solar panels currently being installed. You drive for, you know, 20 minutes and you don't get to the end of it. There is no way to connect that to the grid. Yeah. And so the, the transmission lines, the incredible destruction that they would have to do for the transmission lines to get that to the grid. Right. So there are there are things happening on the ground uh, that are absolutely turning people off. So the other example, of course, is of an hour north of Sydney. They have proposed the largest wind farm in the world. Right? Mm-hmm. So this is 215 turbines. Each turbine is the size of the Eiffel Tower. Sorry, right? So the locals have organized themselves yeah, and said, no, really, you know, can we have another think about this? And if you look at what the, how the wind power business is faring globally, you know, you've got the East Coast in the U.S., you've got the Danish, you know, main supplier to that business. These these are these are in financial, incredible financial strife. And so for us to proceed, you are asking a slightly different question. I think a lot of us that are looking at truth are looking at what are the what is the true situation around the science and the economics. What you're asking about is how does that reach society and how does that then change you know, who we have in power, how we do things. Um, I, I guess I can only say we do that by chipping away, right? Get people up yeah. the educational curve with a couple of really interesting facts, ask a couple of really simple questions. If renewables are the cheapest thing, then why are our power bills so high? You know, formulating it in some pretty simple ways for, for people to understand. The the very subject of carbon, uh, you know, it. I have to say it's quite worrisome here because you have buy-in by, for example, the largest banks. And I happen to know from my uh, the business that I own uh, that the banks are making enormous investments in carbon. Okay, so when I what I mean by that is they want to sell you carbon, so that yep. in order to yep. take that flight to go to Brisbane and visit your dying mother, you're going to have to buy a tree in Zimbabwe, and literally yep. that's what they're doing. Yeah. Now that tree in Zimbabwe, I have a few questions. Number one, well, wait, you bought me a tree in Zimbabwe, and but doesn't that tree die someday and the carbon gets released? So what? haven't you sold me something fraudulent? Uh, so that would be question number one. Number two is that the providers of those carbon credits, you know, supposed carbon credits, 
are incredibly discredited out in the world right now. No, we, hey, we said we were going to buy a forest in Zimbabwe. We never got around to it. We sold you the carbon credits. We got paid, right? So, so uh, you know, I, I hate to point to a really uh, simple example like that. There's another really interesting one here. Um, now, it's not simple to get people up the curve on how the electric grid works. Yeah? It's not just like a bucket where you can pour more in. And there's more in the bucket to yeah. use. It does not operate that way. Okay. And so you have all these incentives. For example, uh, we have something called the renewable energy target, where we must, the, 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 the power companies must purchase a certain amount of renewable energy every year. There's a quota system. So no matter what the price of that, they are forced into, into that, that type of economic activity. Uh, we, for example, so the, the the powers that be know this, and they know that they wouldn't it be great if we could Good. store some energy. So we have something called Snowy Hydro Two here. Yeah, it's pumped hydro storage. <laughs> yeah, so that started off as a two billion dollar project. So the idea is when there's cheap power available, you pump the water up high, and then you let it down, and it makes energy on the way down when you know when you need the we power. Need that started as a two billion dollar project. Okay. They got the drilling machine 150 meters in, and it got stuck. It's been stuck for a year and a half. Okay, <laughs> so successive contractors come in and they say, "Well, this is the cost. Well, this is the cost. This is the cost." The latest estimate is 46 billion dollars to we store start, some energy. We yeah, started from two billion, than, right? From two billion, right? Yeah. So the the official thing is 22, and then you look at what they're saying for the full thing. It's 46 billion dollars with the machine stuck in the ground. No, it's it it's um it's unfortunately a um, it it you know on the one hand it's really laughable on the other hand uh, you've got such broad buy-in uh, unfortunately by both sides of the political spectrum here so we had this spectacle of I'll just uh, this is an anecdote worth repeating of people who haven't maybe followed Australian politics uh, we had uh, the prime minister here he thought he could get some votes from there's some green voters to vote for them and maybe pick up a seat you know offshore where this where this uh they had proposed some natural gas drilling so he said oh we'll cancel the permit i'm gonna install myself as the minister of of the environment he appointed himself to that portfolio right made that rule change and then they lost the seats anyway so that's from the opposition that's from the conservative party here so they have bought into something called the safeguard mechanism which is our carbon tax yeah uh they are lining up every business is going to have to report how much carbon did they use they and if they use too much they're going to have to buy credits right so then that's the opposition <laughs> crazy you know? so, so there's a concept there's a concept that uh called curtailment uh that you have in your market do you want to explain to our listeners what that is because it, this will make your oh blood my. boil it'll make your oh blood my. boil sure so if you're a, let's imagine you run a solar farm and um, you're pumping, you know, it's midday, lots of free electrons getting pushed from your solar panels into the electrical grid, but the grid doesn't need them right then. Okay? Yeah. So yeah. instead of saying, well, sorry, we're not buying your product, the grid operator says, we're going to pay you for not sending us that energy. Okay. And I'm sorry, this is a real thing that is happening in the world. Okay. The other one that people should be aware of is the coal fire plants. They they can't power up and down quickly. It takes 24 to 48 right. hours. So when the renewable energy comes into the grid, the grid operator buys it. 
the fossil energy continues to burn fossil fuel and they bleed off steam. So the supposed renewable is replacing fossil energy, but it is not replacing fossil energy. There are so many economic disincentives, strange incentives, misincentives uh, that it absolutely would make your blood boil. And just a little adjunct to that, um, can you explain um, the um, company Borrell's uh, request for the turning down of their business for a half hour for segments in the middle of the day or something like that. Is that is that real? One of our biggest manufacturing uh, employers here uh, that 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 what we just described as curtailment payments and that battle really between uh, the fossil industry and the renewables industry that takes place each at every moment on the grid uh, that that causes price spikes really severe price spikes we have the biggest price spikes of any country in the world here in australia because of that dynamic yeah now borel right they need to know what their cost of energy is if it's 20 cents that's one thing if it's 45 cents you know an hour later right their entire business premise may have become unprofitable so what they have decided is that when these spikes happen they tell all their workers down tools Okay, this was reported in the Australian Financial Review. Now, if that is not a crazy way to run your economy, can I just say that uh, there is absolutely no chance that a Chinese manufacturing company, an Indian manufacturing company, you know, a Brazilian manufacturing, they don't have to put up with that kind of kind of ridiculousness. And um, right. And so so um, it's less reliable. It's more expensive. Right. Uh, and it, it, in fact, doesn't accomplish what people think it does, which is to somehow save the planet. Um, I'll just say quickly, um, we have a big insurance company here, and their recent ad campaign was you know, about how they're working on global warming until the climate stops changing. Well, right? <laughs> no, come on. This is a lie. The climate of the earth changes. And and just because some billionaires have figured that out and want to make money on it, 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 it is going to always change. Yeah, it will always yeah. change. Yeah. So I mean, the stupidity these days, you know, it is almost like the intelligent have to keep their mouth shut. So there's a stupid don't get offended. And our education system is churning these imbeciles out by the dozen. Honestly, some days I look at it and I look at I have, I have young children. They are you know, both under the age of nine right now. And I wonder, seriously, what sort of deranged world is this? You uh, guys also out there, Mark, you had the, I, I, though you're not a part of it, but we, Don and I were following the Reckless Renewables Rally. So there seems to be quite a pushback among people, especially the rural. As Don said, we don't see that much in the urban areas. They all seem to follow the agenda. But mm. rural Australia is hurting right now, isn't it? Yes, it is. So that actually spawned from the uh, local opposition to the biggest wind farm in the world that they're proposing offshore. It's the organizers of that. And these are people that are across the political spectrum. You know, these mm. are these were primarily labor voters uh, yeah. in that in that it's a labor stronghold, that area. Uh, but they said what is being proposed makes absolutely no sense. And nobody would listen to them in Canberra in the you know national you know head, head government. And so they said, well, we better get over there. And we better start talking about it. now on, to to our great frustration uh neither side of politics really wants to hear about it 
Okay. And so you have managed in your country to, uh, you know, the Red Army has fled the country um, and uh, l- largely with your, uh, with your, you know, good organizational efforts. Uh, we're at the very beginning of that process here. Uh, we really have no, uh, uh, we don't have an opposition to this uh, concept here. Um, now we have, uh, for example, uh, Clive Palmer. So he founded United Australia Party. Um, and, you know, have very sensible views on energy, sensible views on COVID, things like this. There was yep. a lot of yep. a, a lot of uh, opposition that got, um, uh, uh, let's call it, uh, coalesced, you know, in that initiative. Uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, however, uh, you know, Clive spent $100 million on his campaign, and he got one senator. Right. Now, I would just point that there's a really important difference between uh, Clive and Donald Trump. So um, Donald Trump does, you know, puts his money and his reputation. He puts his country before those things. Yeah, and so, um, so, so, you know, politically, we have uh, a small handful of senators, um, members of parliament, uh, uh, really mostly in the Liberal Party, which is our Conservative Party, um, that raise their hands and talk sense. You get Gerard Rennick. You've got. Uh, you know, Alex, Alex, Antich and a couple of really good, really great. Right. But but it's, um, you know, they stand up or Ralph Babbitt, the guy for United Australia Party. They stand up, they say the right thing and then they sit down and, you know, the train keeps going. So that's the level of frustration. So our view is that um, I think COVID taught us that 80 percent of the people uh, stay with the herd. Yeah. And so we really have no choice but to move the entire herd. And so those people then, once they have, uh, you know, moved a bit to understand what the way this brave new world operates, they will then vote for the people, you know, that reflect their views. But we have no choice but really to move everybody. And you can move them a little bit and move them a little bit and move them a little bit. And so that's educational. It is also emotional appeals. I think the emotional appeals and the appeals that affect their pocketbook, I think, are particularly effective. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, economic pain is a great, uh, great leveler. Um, interestingly, just building into that story a little bit, um, you had the voice uh, referenda. It was a clear decision, but even by the following Monday, the activists were out saying, "Well, who cares? We had a referendum. Democracy is not going to reign. We're going to still push our agenda harder and faster." And it seems that that other side is getting traction if i read the australian media and people's response accurately it seems that they haven't given up and they're coming back for round two so democracy is dead in australia or democracy people just can't accept that uh uh perhaps there is an alternate view yeah Um, so i i guess my top level comment is that freedom is not free Hmm. and uh what that means is that um, it requires maintenance and constant surveillance and vigilance and action. Yeah. And so, right, we, I think for many years, we took freedom as being something that's free. No, we have to constantly uh, defend it and talk about it. And so, as an example, we had a free, you know, will of the people vote. We had more than 60% of the people say, no, we don't want this thing. And, uh, and we need to continue uh, to fight for those freedoms. Now, I think, Jazz, you have done an outstanding uh, job of exposing people to uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah, because that's really the very top of the tree 
of where this um, this organized globalist uh, sort of program, you know, uh, percolates from. And um, so uh, can we be free if um, uh, some radicalized bureaucrats in Switzerland, you know, have the ability to dictate to, for example, local council members, you know, how they will, you know, implement, you know, whether it's energy or Aboriginal Aboriginal affairs or, you know, uh, you know, surveillance or any of that. And so um, it is it's an epic struggle. It's mankind against those forces. Uh, We actually also think a lot about the nation state versus the globals, because um, the nation state is the organizing principle that lets people say, no, we have these beliefs in common. We live in this place. It's this a place. specific you know, group, specific area, specific set of beliefs, specific, you know, economics, all that stuff. And that's really the thing that um, we think needs um, urgent defending. Now, Donald Trump does that by saying, you know, make America great again. He uses the word America and he's proud yeah. to use that word. Uh, we have a, a coordinated attack on the idea that Australia is a good place. It's a good nation, has a good history, has good culture, has good, you know, um, uh, you know, institutions. And that's that is um, it, 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 simultaneously. It's an easy way to get people to understand some of the forces that are arrayed against them is that, hey, is what they're doing good for Australia and Australians? Okay? Yeah. Or is it good for an investor in London? Right. Or an investor in New York or a bureaucrat in Geneva or Brussels. Right. And so there's a very black or white thing there that you can say, well, wait a minute, that's not good for any Australians. Right. So we think that 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 um, that kind of political construct will help people. uh, So, no, I don't think democracy is dead. We saw, you know, they they do not have, uh, you know, that referendum was defeated. Now, just to be clear, the referendum, the entire establishment was arrayed against, you know, in, in favor of changing our constitution. And I mean, the sports stars, the rock stars, yeah, the banks, the airline, the entire media, Everything. right? You finally, at late in the day, you had the Liberal Party say, oh, well, we're not for it. Uh, they were called racist for that, of course. Um, but people said, no, thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really what they were saying, no, thank you to, uh, once they understood, I think, some of the things that United Nations was going to uh, propagate on top of the nation there from through something called UN DRIP, so the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, there, there was something really curious that I don't think people under, that people started to understand is that when you give Aboriginal persons, you know, these uh, Native title rights, it's done on a collective basis. That's not where an Aboriginal family can say, "Oh, I want this piece of land. I'm going to grow a business." No, it's a, it's co- it's collective. So this yep. is Marxist. It's communist. Yeah. Now I'll just mention there was a recent. Um, so Santos is the big gas company here. They had a seven and a half billion dollar project up in the Timor Sea. So this is one of the most godforsaken areas on the planet. There's nobody there, right? And honestly, the climate, the the, the geographical distances, it's unbelievable. They had a, a gas project proposed that had a pipeline going under sea. And the uh, Environmental Defense Organization run by the labor government said, oh, we want to file a lawsuit. Let's get the local Aboriginal council to file a lawsuit saying, wait a minute. Now, they didn't object on environmental or or economic. They objected on spiritual grounds. Okay, the crocodile spirit under the ocean objected to this pipeline. Okay, 
Now, the good news, however, is that this Aboriginal Council presented, you know, maps and evidence. They had map. They had maps that had islands on them that didn't even exist. And so the 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 judge was completely scathing, threw the whole thing out, put the costs of the thing onto the Aboriginal Corporation. Big win, right? For common sense in Australia and Australians, right? So yes, it's a battle. No, freedom's not free. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And so uh, so when you go to the grocery store, right, and you run into a neighbor, right, it is up to you to say, oh, hi, did you hear about the you know, such and such? Right. So we really have to uh, yeah, take that to heart. It's up to us. Um, I, I'll make one quick comment about what it's like to be an American. Yeah, because we um, from uh, my very first day in school, I stood up and they they made me say or I was happy to say. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with freedom and liberty for all. That's every day that I said that. So down here in Australia, it's in my DNA to understand this. We we mythologize the people who fought for freedom. Okay? By contrast, yeah, Australians were granted freedom. Okay, They were granted it. Uh, when they were, you know, uh, transported here, okay? you were in jail in London. Yeah. Now you're a free man to work here. So they were granted it. They were not, they never had to fight it. Yeah? So we kind of think of three people in three categories. There's um, the Americans, Eastern Europeans, and Middle Easterners who have experienced tyranny or have our freedom in their bones. Yeah. In the middle tier is kind of Australians and a lot of others. Now, I will say that Chinese, right? They're very unreliable freedom partners. They've never experienced freedom. Yeah, not the way the West the They went straight from the warlords to, you know, Mao. Yeah. yeah. And any freedoms they get, they're super grateful for. They want to keep their heads down. I know that that those are generalizations, but that's just, you know, some food for thought that um really uh, the Yanks and the Eastern Europeans and the and the Middle East, you know, some of the Middle Eastern countries are really good at fighting for it. Yeah, look, I feel we're going once over lightly over many things here, and we, we're probably going to have to sort of get to the conclusion pretty soon, but we can't let you go without, uh, well, this hopefully is the first of many interviews we'll do with you, but we can't let you go without talking about the recent video you put out, Lest We Forget, The Battle of Australia, a video essay on the COVID era, and it was released, uh, listeners, on January 27th, so you can find it on this on the um, Resistance Action Australia Substack. Um it's fantastic. Uh, I just implore people to to watch it. Um, could you just give your recollections of uh, the last yeah. four years, really, building into that video? Yeah. Um, we had the uh, longest lockdowns in the world here in Australia, and I know that Jacinda had some very serious ones in New Zealand as well. We had the longest ones in the world here. Uh, we also had the harshest ones outside of communist China. Yeah. And to end those, we actually literally had to battle the police in the streets of the, of the country. Yeah. To get back to regular, anything like right. normal life. Yeah. Uh, so what we wanted to do with that video is just put a marker down, kind of a historical marker. You know, they remember the Battle of Verdun. They remember the Battle of Normandy. This was the Battle of Australia, where in order to regain our country, essentially, you know, we had to fight in the streets. And um, 
there were some really shameful episodes. I'll just cite one of them. So the worst was in Victoria, um, uh, and they had um, uh, vaccine mandates for the construction workers. Yeah. And in the week or two leading up to the day of the mandate of the injection, you must have the injection or you are now unemployed that day, right? In the week leading up to that, you had four workers jump from their buildings and take their own lives because they did not, you know, they they really understood that that injection was not something that they wanted. And so it's an absolutely shameful episode. Now, that was also the peak of the Battle of Australia. Okay. And there's a little clip in the, in the video that, that shows the police retreating and the longshoremen and the construction workers, you know, pushing back and getting really our, our country back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that was... and, and sorry, Jesper. No, it is very poignant. I've watched it uh, more than once, I should admit. And the similarities of what we face, you know, even on both sides of the Tasman, it is. It's so clear that all of this came from one point. And as you said, freedom, freedom is not free. But the point is, many of us have gotten used to taking it for granted, haven't we, Don? We've not known anything else. That's absolutely true. Uh, New Zealanders have taken it for granted. Um, we keep repeating that we've been comfortably numb as our line, and uh, we're guilty. We are all guilty of being far too comfortable uh, and trusting of the people around us. And clearly, there's been lots of people that have had the agendas you talk about for a long, long time, Mark, and they found their they found their moment to really push them home. Even though they've been coming at us for a long, lot longer, they're real easy. We were an easy touch all of a sudden, and hopefully, the resistance as you are putting on people now is is starting to build momentum again and take take ownership back of our of our future. Um, that's how we, I see we, it. We anyway. had a, a yeah, I'll just give a quick uh, signpost of that. So uh, there's a group here called the Climate Council, and they are responsible for indoctrination, uh, according to, you know, uh, uh, the Green New Scan. Um, they had one of the things they did was they went, for example, they're very proud to say that they went and explained to 400 hairdressers uh, how important climate change was and how to talk to their customers. Right? Now, the Climate Council yesterday announced that in the upcoming Queensland election, they could not find any candidates who would be receive the monies from for their teal like approach. So this is having an effect. Our efforts are having a huge effect. They couldn't find a single candidate to donate to who would have the teal agenda. The teal agenda is conservative, economically conservative, socially, you know, plus green new scam. Yeah. yeah? They couldn't find <laughs> a single candidate to run that would espouse those. And that's because the the actual thing happening on the ground is people are fed up. They have seen what their power bills do. They've seen the hypocrisy. They are getting the you know the scales taken off their eyes, and they understand that um, uh, you know for the first time in their lifetimes, really, the government has tipped over from being kind of mostly working in our favor to working against what we what we all need and want. Yeah, yeah they understand so, times yeah. up for this sort of yeah yeah times up. <laughs> Time's up for this. This And yeah, it has to be. How long can we continue? The other thing that has struck me, as you said, Mark, you have no opposition. We are exactly the same. And that's another thing, that referendum in Australia on the Aboriginal voice, which your substack, an excellent substack, I might add, for our listeners, Resistance Action Australia, calls referendum. That word says it all. 
We know where this <laughs> comes from. But Mark, where can our listeners find your website, the COVID Truth website? Oh, sure. They can just go to Substack and it's just called Resistance Action Australia. Yeah, uh, so my, you don't have my, a separate website as such? So we also run a site called the Gov COVID Medical Network. It's also a Substack. And okay. that's um, the okay. other other uh, one of the key members of our group, Dr. Dr. Jerry Brady. So it's the largest kind of COVID truth site in Australia. It's the first and we think the best. So there's that. We're actually organizing for a much larger presence, but it's going to be mostly via TikTok. Yeah. So <laughs> sort of 30 second, you know, quick hits because yeah. um, that's that's the endorphin uh, fire hose. Yeah. And that's really where we need to get people with this business of, of that we're going to logic our way out of this or we're going to reason our way out of this. No, these are people who believe that men can get pregnant, you know, I mean, <laughs> so right. So it really is very much an emotional thing. We love the TikTok. We actually have, I think, 10 percent of the population of Australia in our listings of TikTok followers. So that's very much the push for us going forward. But uh, I'll just say last note is that um, I called the my own substack, I called a Resistance Action Australia because my father was in the Dutch resistance in World War II. Uh, he wrote an anti-Nazi play. Uh, he was imprisoned by the Gestapo. Uh, and so that's the inspiration. Fantastic. What a heritage. Fantastic, Mark. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. And thanks for sharing your time with uh, with RCR Greenwash this afternoon. It's my pleasure. I think you guys are doing a great thing. And we really want to try to replicate that out here in Australia. Thank you. Thank you. All, all part to you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Welcome back. You have a just Preet and Dawn on Greenwash this morning. And before we go today, we wanted to spotlight NGOs and this, this particular segment, the first one today, we'll be focusing on CARE, C-A-R-E. This The CARE Center, its website is C-A-R-E-C-C-A.nz, and it stands for Center for Cultural-Centered Approach to Research and Evaluation. It is based within the Macy's School of Journalism, and this one is headed by Professor... I would say Dr. Mohan Datta, and it has been there for a while. Initially, its beginnings were in Singapore, and for the last few years, it's been here. And Dawn and I, we've been looking at some of the output coming from this particular care center. It almost seems diabolical to me to call it that, seeing what they have been talking about. And they have these activists in resident programs. So we have some activists, some prominent activists who often are highlighted on breakfast and evening news as experts such as Byron Clark and others who have gone through the Macy's School of Journalism's care centers, activist in residence program. Oh, and moreover, they have Sue Bradford, uh, ex-MP, uh, Green Party, uh, Catherine Dallahunty, ex-Parliament, mm -hmm. ex-MP, ex-Green Party. Mm -hmm. These are their activists in residence. Sue Bradford was the first, by the way. Now, she's a, she's a feisty individual, no argument. She's been uh, getting airtime in New Zealand for many, many decades now, and good on her. But, um, yeah, I just, uh, I've read her inter interaction with Mohan Dutta, yep. the director uh, of the Centre for Culture, Centred Approach and Research and Evaluation, um, big mouthful. And I just, I mean, I just uh, despair that these people are able to get funded to do this and stuff. So why did this catch my attention? They had this paper 
that was released both on YouTube with a quite a long spiel. But this white paper is which the, uh, which they talk in the introduction should actually be called a brown paper because if it's a white paper, is again you know referring to the white oh. supremacy. So Catherine Delahanty and Professor Mohan J. Datta, the dean's chair professor of the Care Center, have titled this "Replacing Colonial Theft and Capitalism by Lunchtime." And this paper begins by saying that the climate and environmental crisis, because we are greenwashed after all, Don and I, and that's where we are going now. The climate and environmental crises we are in the midst of are symptoms of failed extractive economic systems based on colonial theft. The disproportionate burden of climate change borne by indigenous and local communities across the global south foreground the importance of locating climate justice as the anchor to climate change organizing. In this white paper, we argue that climate change cannot be addressed without the recognition of racial capitalist processes that drive it. So, you know, to muddy the waters further, carbon dioxide, methane, how good and bad they are. There's one more angle. And if you had joined us right at the beginning this morning, you would have heard me play a clip from uh, the U.S., where there was a similar narrative about how climate change affects disproportionately affects the uh, colored people of color more in the U.S. It is no different here. But these are taxpayer, partly taxpayer funded institutes. They also have funding from overseas, uh, from Singapore with uh, one of their parent institutes. But this is what they're talking about. They, Prof Professor Datta and Catherine Delahanty say, we offer the argument that addressing climate change calls for justice-based framework that's both anti-colonial and anti-capitalist and looks to indigenous people and communities to rebuild relationships with Earth. Wow. Incredible stuff, Jaspreet. And I can't, well, you can feel it happening around us with the woke policies of the last uh, you know, five or seven years. It's grown legs, this stuff. And it's interesting because you and I talk about the, uh, you know, we talked to Tom DeWeese on Freedom mm -hmm. Pods, his movement. These people have been doing it for decades. They're ilk. They're very well organized. They speak with forked tongues. They don't really mean what they say. They, they say they're anti the global elites. They're anti the WEF, but they actually are linked in uh, by the very way they act. So, I find them a huge contradiction. And what do they mean when they say everything is colonial? Are people of color like me not having houses? Am I supposed to? I don't know. Or Evie, who have, you know, if you, if you and I, we live close to Queenstown and you see the massive building there between Nahitao and others and all the economic activity going on there. Is that extractive capitalism? Would they term that also colonialism? I don't know. But, you know, just as uh, any good socialist would say, they say that inherent in this work of addressing climate change, they say, is the essential redistribution of wealth and commitment to a value-based system that challenges class oppression and the contamination of resources and this earth. Mm -hmm. Class-based systems. I mean, where have I heard this before? Redistribution of income. Where have I heard this before? They are, there's no difference between them and what, you know, the Marxist theories are. In fact, they refer 
very clearly to that in this paper, saying that in Aotearoa, New Zealand is gone, class largely aligns with struggles of people of color. So white people, you do not struggle. You have it easy as you have it laid out for you on a silver platter. The solutions that came out of the 19th and 20th, 20th century Marxism, they say are still relevant today. Hello? Does Marxism give us some solutions? It uh, it certainly gives you um, decline in living standards. That's for sure. Uh, it's well known that it's not. It doesn't work. And yet, there's been this hundred year uh, long march through the institutions that all these people are hooked into. Um, I can't believe that we. Um, I know I'm big on free speech and and basic freedoms, but we're funding this stuff through our universities we're allowing this to get legs uh and i i just find it counterproductive uh and but it's and i think a lot of maori would find this counterproductive because uh, i've got my wife is part maori we mm-hmm. we can't we can't even find any common ground in this stuff none of it but you know the roots of the people who are pushing this now there's this website called culturedcenteredapproach.com and Professor Mohan Jitata blogs on this. This And he's blogging under the Macy handle. So this is, you know, part of his official work. In And he says, there's this page called Service. Professor Datta says, as a three-year-old, I asked my uncle, a trade union leader in my hometown, Professor Datta hails from Bengal in India. I asked my, three-year, uh, my trade union leader uncle in my hometown at age three, if I could help him paint hammer and sickle on the little red flags that were arranged in the long line on the roof of a house. My socially engaged family of political leaders and trade unionists taught me to believe in social change and work for it. The abject poverty and struggles of my people taught me that intellectual exchange is incomplete without the real struggle of real people, and therefore my scholarship is very real. This is a person who at age three was painting symbols. <laughs> they are communist symbols, aren't they? As my granddad would say, uh, yeah. comrade symbols. Comrade symbols. And so this, I think you've told me that the state that he comes from is seriously communist in its um, demeanour. Yep. Yeah. yep, yep, yep. So it's uh, West Bengal. I did my degree there in Calcutta. Fort William is where uh, the British, ex-British army setup was. And uh, yeah, Calcutta is, is, West Bengal is seriously communist or a socialist state as compared to, say, the state where I come from, Punjab. But the point is, if you find everything so racist, Don, why are you in a predominantly white country? Or why, even if you call it a Maori country or a white country or any other country, why don't you then just stick to your homeland? Well, that, that is the next question. Because I have, you see the similar thing from Tom Jovis that you have Hordes coming across the southern border wanting to go to America. And the moment they reach America, they're like, this is a racist place. We need to decolonize. Mm. It's such a bad country, but they want yeah, to go then... there. <laughs> I, I don't get this. I, I don't get this. And uh, the standard of living uh, in New Zealand is massively improved in the last, um, in, in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. So I can't blame people for wanting to come here. So why do we need to? Uh, create this next level of talking about victimhood all the time. There's got to there's got to be the ulterior motive. The ulterior motive, as you say, is you know effectively Marxism. 
They want that, and it's not pleasant. Marxism, is, Marxism will not be will not go well for us if that was allowed to get into our national um, governance regime at all. So these people need to be diminished in their noise, not in, not in, not enhanced. I mean, if you're looking for, I don't know how much Marx dwelled on his life in climate change, but if you're looking at uh, you know, 18th century, 19th century Marxism and talking of spreading socialist ideas in society. And that's how you're going to deal with decarbonization and demethanization. Dare I use that word? Hmm. This is a very weird spot to be. And yet these are the people we welcome into the country. You know, just hmm. like me, this gentleman is a migrant. These are the people who are setting up NGOs in this country. And these are the people... I mean, uh, there was this whole talk. And if you ever go to YouTube, just search for CARE, C-A-R-E, CARE Macy. And they have under their live tab, they have a whole lot of videos. And they are telling us that everything that, you know, migrants, we are being, we are further pushing. I guess he's probably referring to people like me who are further pushing the white supremacist ideas because they've been so browbeaten that they don't know what's good for them. But gosh, if I was that fed up, I'd head home, wouldn't I? Yeah, I? yeah, so look, I I think they take the grifter title for this week. Um, they need further investigation, go into their funding stream, um, all sorts of things. We need to we need to work on these people, these agencies, um, these privileged agencies. These, we just got to take these them universities apart. that seem to think Marxism and socialism yeah. is the answer to everything and solving the climate crisis and so on. So mm. this is the care center. Care Centre, one laughs at the name being given, the Care Centre at the Macy School of Journalism and have a look at some of their recent YouTube videos, especially around Waitangi Day and others where he is berating migrants to not allow themselves to uh, get buy into the white supremacist ideas because it's so easy to get co-opted once you head to a new country. It is it is uh, patronising, it is funny. It's one smart, patronising. One smartphone at a time. Yeah, we're not allowed. To, we won't be allowed to learn through through our smartphones, will we? Because they don't use that. They, <laughs> they don't, don't use they it. Don't. <laughs> no. Anyway, hey, great week. Uh, I think uh, I've enjoyed the show today, Jasper. I hope you have, and I hope our listeners um, have as well. So we learn every week, and um, that's our job. Isn't Absolutely. It? So that's our show for the week. Thank you so much for joining Don and me this Monday morning on Greenwashed. Wherever you are, whatever you do, have a great rest of the week and we will see you again soon. Thank you for tuning in. 2057 is a number or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Goodbye.